This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Seafood Sourcing. Formed in 2016, Seafood Sourcing are Scotland's premier seafood exporter, delivering the finest quality in fish from sea to shelf in the fastest possible time. With supply from all main Scottish ports, including from Europe's largest fishing port at Peterhead, daily catches are billeted by Seafood Sourcing's high-skilled team at their facility in Fraserburgh, prior to transport and a fleet of modern, refrigerated lorries providing deliveries to as far afield as Belgium and France within 12 hours. For all of your seafood supply needs, contact Seafood Sourcing on 01346 410080 or by email on sales at seafoodsourcing.co.uk. Oh, a bit slight of foot there. I'm Gary Scott and welcome along to episode 10 of the ABZ Football Podcast. And joining me this week, as always, it's Graham Steele and Gavin Baxter. How's it going, guys? Fine currently, but in a couple of minutes when we go into the St. Johnston game, probably not so much. In reference to your introduction that last week, um, I wish I was suspended from watching uh, St. Johnston at Pataudry on the 18th of September 2021, because my God, that was turgid. And Graham... Um, Graham, your shout, early season shout for player of the season, Jason Holt, picked up a second booking of the season I noticed last week. Are you, are you wanting to revise that uh, that view? No, no, I stand by my inability to predict anything. And in the usual fantasy football segment, that will bear fruit, that will be proven to be correct, that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, unbelievably, we've managed to make it to a 10th episode of this nonsense. And it's another busy one this week. So we're going to start things off with a look at the 1-0 home defeat. To St. Johnson on Saturday, I'm going to pick through some of the reaction to it and I guess give some of our reaction as well. And, and that might be one you might want to put the kids out of the car or out of the room for that. That one might get a little bit explicit. And we'll also take a wee look at the women's team as Emma Hunter's Showtime Aberdeen recorded a 1-0 victory at home over Hamilton Ackies in SWPL1. And we'll give you a roundup on the young team and monitor their progress this week, either at Aberdeen or out on their respective loans. And to round off the first half of the show, we've got our preview section for next weekend's crucial league match at St Mirren. And to round things off and to celebrate reaching the milestone of 10 episodes, our interview segment is positively bursting at the seams this week with our in-depth and exclusive interview with one of the finest and most naturally talented individuals to ever pull on the red shirt. A man who made 380 appearances for the Dons over two spells, scoring 94 goals in the process, and who picked up two League Cup winners medals and one Scottish Cup winners medal in his time a man with a YouTube showreel that puts Lionel Messi to shame. It's the Portsoy Pelly, the incomparable Ian Jess. But before we get to the good stuff, Aberdeen nil, St. Johnston won Pataudry Stadium, SPFL Premiership, the 18th of September, 2021. So the Dons come at the game fresh off the defeat to Motherwell at Fair Park and the subsequent reaction to it, both in the media and amongst sections of the support manager, Stephen Glass, making three changes to his starting lineup with Austin Samuels and J. Manuel Thomas recalled to the starting 11, and David Bates making his full Aberdeen debut. Declan Galker and Matty Longstaff dropping to the bench, and Marley Watkins missing out of the squad completely with injury. 
And now again, rejoined the bench in place of Conor McLennan. So Johnston, without a league win all season, made four changes to the side that was beaten by Rangers last time out. New signing Effie Ambrose, making a full debut as he was brought into the starting eleven, alongside Callum Booth, Murray Davidson and Glenn Middleton, with Hayden Muller, Liam Craig, Ali Crawford and Reeks Devine all dropping to the bench. And once again, the Dons kind of came out the traps pretty quickly and we're not far off a third-minute opener. A cross ball from Lewis Ferguson, narrowly missed by both Ramirez and Jet as the ball floated behind. Michael Halloran, I thought, was a lucky boy to only end up with a booking on eight minutes, a flailing elbow for him catching his former Rangers teammate Ross McCrory flash in the face with a McCrory requiring some lengthy treatment to a nasty-looking mouth wound. And then the game fell into a typically attritional Aberdeen-St. Johnston affair with both sides cancelling each other out for the majority of the first half. A good bit of play by Samuels down the left wing just before the half hour mark produced a decent looking cross but there were no Aberdeen players within the vicinity to capitalise and then came the Don's best chance of the game a Calvin Ramsey corner found Ramirez unmarked at the back stick but the American got his header all sorts of wrong and his header flew well wide of Xander Clark's goal a first shot on target arrived on 36 minutes good play again with Samuels and he cut in off the left before hitting a deflected shot from 25 yards that was easily gathered by Clark and it was more of the same after the break. Samuels with a low shot from the left side was comfortably dealt with by Clark at his near post. A couple of minutes later, a McKenzie cross from the left swept across the six-yard box without anyone close to being on the end of it. A looping jet header on 55 minutes was easily gathered by Xander Clark. As the Dons began to build more pressure with St. Johnston starting to sit deeper and deeper as the half wore on. Johnny Hayes replaced Samuels on the hour mark, the young Wolves kid being withdrawn to protect the injury he'd suffered the week prior. And at the same time, St. Johnson withdrew O'Halloran for Crawford. And this was a move that appeared to spark Saints into life with Middleton going close with a snapshot from the edge of the area that Lewis had to turn around the post. And shortly afterwards, Middleton was left free in the box to nudge home a loose ball, but his joy was short-lived as the main stand linesman waved him offside. Now again then made an appearance for the Dons, replacing Jet on 66 minutes with a certain Stevie May replacing Glenn Middleton on 69. A decent ball from Johnny Hayes was well defended by Brown with Ramirez waiting. And the Dons were then forced into a final substitution with Bates signaling an injury and he limped off to be replaced by Gallagher. And then the inevitable. A ball from Booth fell kindly via Calvin Ramsey for Stevie May, who cut inside Ramsey and Gallagher before hitting a low, bobbling shot that appeared to travel in slow motion as it crept inside Joe Lewis's right-hand post to give Saints the breakthrough. The Dons huffed and puffed for the remaining period of normal time and the six minutes of injury time that followed thereafter but couldn't find an equaliser, which means the Dons are now without a win in seven straight games and have not kept a clean sheet since the opening day of the SPFL campaign. Once again, the Dons dominate possession and territory, 66% possession overall, but with an XG of only 0.5, it's once again not surprising to see the Dons fail to register a goal. Gents, your thoughts on that one? I don't really know. I don't even have anything where I can... Normally, I would have the the old default of, oh, well, you know, we didn't get any injuries, but Bates got taken off with what looked like a, a little bit of a niggle. Um, and I thought he'd been pretty steady, actually. So I genuinely... I'd like to offer up something unique and insightful. But to be honest, I feel the way probably anyone that's listening to this feel was just... It was garbage. It's way below what is expected and required but I don't see, I don't see a lack of effort from the players. I, I wouldn't um, accuse them of that. I don't think it's a lack of quality, generally speaking. I think uh, most of those players are, but they were better than the Johnson players, in my opinion. Appreciate the result didn't reflect that. So yeah, I'm not too sure where 
to go from here. I didn't see anything that particularly liked the pattern of the last few games is that, okay, great, we can maybe hold on to the ball a little bit better. We don't seem to be able to do anything with it. The mistakes are always there. And I don't really see, I know transition's a popular word amongst the support, but I don't see what we're, I think we all know what we're transforming from, which was games like this and poor form and results, but I don't see what we're transforming to. And I mean, like if we were playing sort of clever, intricate balls into a striker who wasn't quite reading it yet, but everyone else was on the same page, you think, well, that'll click. But I don't. it's not just that one thing. It just seems to be in general, we just look devoid of any creativity and any ideas. Yeah, I'm sure we'll break down sections and aspects of the game in more detail but um if i was just going overall in general i think you know gary wasn't there this weekend which is jammy which is typical because he somehow manages to avoid shite games but whatever um on a point of reference on that i still do subject myself to watching it on red tv that's not the same you can mute it or go out the room you're not stuck there that that doesn't count yeah just all the same problems we've we've come across so far this season they were there and in abundance it's it's beginning to look like those first few matches were just you know anomalies um and this is maybe what we have to settle in for this season um like like graham says you know the defense looks like it's defense just looks so frail looks like there's mistakes there all the time the concerning aspect for me is that there's now this really obvious separation between defense and midfield where it take, it doesn't take much for teams to be able to break in space um, to get really good chances against us. And then at the opposite end of the pitch, do you remember when Cali Thistle got promoted for the very first time? I think they got beat 3-0 by, I think, Livingston in their first game, and someone ran the headline or sub-headline that said, Inverness Cali Thistle only got two real problems. They can't defend and they can't attack. Kind of how I'm feeling right now with Aberdeen. And, you know, Stephen Glass has had... We might say that his job started um, this season, but you know he had a significant period of time to look at what we had coming into the season, and he's still fallen into the trap of if Ryan Hedges isn't available, we've got nothing going forward. That's a concerning factor. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more, but yeah. Nothing that hasn't already been said. It was just utter, utter shite. So let's just break that down just a wee bit then. So, I mean, looking at the, the defence, I think we've all agreed that defensively we've looked really suspect all season and uh, we touched on it earlier we've only kept one clean sheet now um in in a number of games the, the opening defeat uh the opening victory sorry against Dundee United our last clean sheet of the campaign but I actually thought I thought Bates I thought Bates did well actually the weekend when he was on I thought we actually looked a little bit more solid at the back I don't think during the period that Bates was on the pitch St Johnson didn't really cut us open at any particular point as I can recall so if you're going to take a positive out of it, I thought Bates' performance was one that should maybe give us some hope that the defence can be can be strengthened and sorted out a little bit. I think that's fair enough. He looked yeah, he looked quite good, looked comfortable on the ball. I think you mentioned an episode or two ago. I don't know if his physique has changed since he was last year, but he looks more of a, a suitable build for what we would want. So yeah, definitely positives there. But I think... You know, you were saying it didn't look like we got uh, cut open. In general, I don't think we are getting cut open by teams. It's just, it's stupid mistakes in their, in their straight end. And when I say cut open, I mean, it's not like, um, you know, we're getting outfoxed or outplayed. It's just, it's as if the opposition has been told, let us pass the ball around the back 
they'll give it to you and then you're in. And that happened on more than one occasion on Saturday and that's happened plenty of times this season. And I guess then you kind of, you naturally just move up the park, don't you, from that perspective. So you, you look at a kind of midfield three that we had on at the weekend, which is Brown, Ferguson, Ojo, um, Longstaff missing out this weekend. I still felt, uh, you guys might feel the same as well, I still felt watching it that we still, and Gav, you have already touched on it really, there's still just that lack of creativity in that midfield three that you're just not going to get. And it, it was a bit worrying for me, I thought, that in the second half, the player who I thought actually looked the most creative out of the midfield three was Brown. It's been talked a lot about our kind of overabundance of centre midfielders. And I think it's a perfectly fair enough point to say that they're not, it's not three sitting midfielders or three carbon copy players doing the exact same thing. My question right now is whether these players are capable of doing the job that's being asked to them. Um, and that, that refers specifically probably right now to Ojo. I wonder if his team spell in the team is coming to an end. So I, I'm not really sure what he's bringing, to be honest with you. And I don't know what's going to be worked on in training or what, what's been worked on in terms of attack, but it just seems right now it's just very much side to side. And even then, that's frustrating because one thing I've kind of picked up in the last couple of weeks that's starting to bother me is that, and I don't know if this is a directive they've been given, but Mackenzie and Ramsey tend to be quite conservative in their, you know, making overlapping runs. There's quite a number of situations we work into where you can see there's, if a run is made, it either leads to the pass or it creates space for the um, attacking player, whether it's, you know, Samuels or Ojo Ferguson, you know, whoever. And they just seem to hold back and it's quite frustrating to watch. And just that lack of urgency or intent seems to just be, you know, you know, that seems to be something that just goes through the team as a whole right now. But do you think that that lack of willingness to get up and overlap is maybe being borne out by A, recent experience and, and, and B, the system that we're playing at the moment? Because if we're playing this kind of four, like the weekend was a 4 I don't know if there's any kind of real doubt about that. But they naturally don't have a player they're kind of overlapping with in that system. And it also means, you know, they're not, they're, that therefore means that there's not naturally somebody dropping back in to cover them if they go up the park and there's, you know, they, they lose the ball or something. And also both of them have been caught out, I think, in recent games where teams have exploited us playing with higher fullbacks. They've just knocked balls in behind, in behind them. So I wonder if it's a combination of both those things, that the system and the personnel aren't helping that and also the players are a little bit wary about being caught out. I think that's fair enough. We were chatting about that and we, we were of the opinion that everyone's just got a little bit nervous about the fact that we are conceding goals and yeah, we were taking the view that they've been told almost like as if you're going to go forward, make sure it's an absolute certainty or we are, you know, we've got cover or we're, we're all overloaded up front and we're just going for it type thing. And that seems to be, I guess that's really difficult. It's quite a difficult direction to follow anyway, I would say. And I think it's really difficult when you are a couple of young guys learning the game because you just don't have that wealth of experience to know really what's, what is a good time to go forward and what's not. And actually one point I hadn't really thought of which you made was, yeah, if you don't really have that sort of comfort that if you go past someone and lose the ball, they're going to, you know, basically makes no difference. You're just playing a little bit further up and someone's dropped in. If you're basically totally exposed and then you've got two at the back, you are, uh, you're overrun quite quickly, actually. If you're Calvin Ramsey on Saturday, right? Are you really wanting to overlap on like Jet's pretty much your nearest overlap person you're doing you're you're overlapping with? Are you relying on Jet going to be tracking back 60 yards to, to close down somebody? If you're relying on Jet to track back five yards, you're an idiot. So you're right, he's totally exposed. <laughs> I guess that brings us 
<laughs> neatly onto like the front three that we had at the weekend as well. Um, well, I'll, I'll go on record here and say that I was quite happy to see Jet in the starting lineup. Uh, well, I touched on it last week. I think, Graham, you know, when we looked at the previous St. Johnson game, I kind of thought maybe this might be a, a fixture for Jet. Um, I didn't expect him to be playing in the position he was playing in, so um, I would have probably rather seen him a bit closer to Ramirez playing almost as like a 10, just off of him like he was in the initial parts of the season, like against Hecken, for example. But we went with the front three again of, of Ramirez, obviously, as, as the nine. Jet kind of off on the right-hand side and Samuels on the left-hand side. And uh, like uh, I think I already tweeted out, I thought actually Samuels and Bates were probably our best two performers on the day. Um, I, I like the look of Samuels. I like the fact he's got... But I, but I don't know if I just like him purely because he's actually got some pace and he's willing just to take on a player and, and kind of go past him and just do something with it. Yeah, he's he's got... Certainly, he's very direct and he's got a lot of intent when he gets the ball. What I would say is, um, so Steele and I met our mate Bones outside the game and he made the point that when it comes to Sam's, it tends to be he gets the ball, head goes down, he makes for the byline and he just smashes it. And it's quite and it's quite hard to disagree with that, really. So I think that's fair enough. Yeah, I think I think, I think he needs to bring more um, and maybe just have a bit more awareness when it comes to his final ball or something a little bit different um, because, yeah, that's going to get tiring quite soon if that's kind of all he brings yeah i absolutely i do quite like him but i think you might be right gary i don't think it's necessarily down to he's an incredible player i think it's just he's doing something a little bit different to the other guys we've had up front and i suppose in general someone who can put the ball past the opposition and run past them is a little bit more exciting than someone that can just run into them and lose the ball so it's good that he can get there but uh, yeah and uh Afterwards, Bones and I had some refreshments. He was pretty vocal on the fact that we were joking. There's a couple of times the balls he put in, he's thinking, no wonder Ramirez was nowhere near it. Taking his head off if he got a, if he tried to get on the end of it. You know, he's putting in 100 mile an hour crosses. And it's just, a, it feels like it's ticking a box. I got the ball into the box. That's fine. But was there anyone there? Was it in the right position? Um, you know, I, get, I know it's easier maybe get a wee flick on a ball with pace uh, and it might go in or bounce off a defender. But in principle... They didn't really look like they were measured crosses to pick someone out. They just looked like he blasted past someone and was firing it in. And I'm not too sure how many goals we're going to score if that's all he can do. I think in fairness to Samuels, he's not a winger, is he, really? He's a, he's a number nine. He's come through the Wolf system in a number nine position. So he's, he's having to learn on the trade here as well a little bit. Well, I was just going to caveat everything we just said by making that point, which then brings into question the sort of recruitment policy of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I agreed. Yeah, that's the exact point I was going to make. Then what was the point of, I'm getting a bit, uh, appreciate it's not just Aberdeen managers that do it, but I just get a bit annoyed. There's always excuses, oh, well, that's not his position, but what's the point of playing him there then? We've mentioned it many times. If a guy does a good job in a position and you sign him, you play him in that position, that's the point. If you don't want him to play in that position or that's not the system you want to play, go and get someone else. I, I am I am getting more and more baffled by the choice of system, I must admit, as weeks go by, because... Well, we're going to come on to Ramirez now, right? For me, Ramirez is absolutely not a number nine on his own up front. Just, it, that is clearly not his position. It's clearly not the way he wants to play the game. He needs, I think, somebody up alongside him, pretty close to him, either to you know have some interplay with or to you know, like what him and Jet were doing earlier in the season. I think asking him to play as the sole striker, try to chase down defenders as well, doing a press, but asking him to be always available to come in short to do link-up play or then ask him to be in the box. 
is just not going to work for us. And I think when you combine that together with the obvious deficiencies we can see at the back, I'm still utterly baffled that we went with like a 4-3-3 setup at the weekend. It just doesn't scream out to me the best way to get anything out of the resources we actually have available to us. Yeah, that's all fair. I mean, go the Ramirez one in particular, not picking on him as an individual, but it's a player that we wanted. It's a player Glass knows, so we have to assume that Glass is, you know, I want him and he must be familiar with how he has played. Now, I know we spoke about his record over the, the piece in the MLS and, you know, it wasn't great in terms of goal scoring, but I wasn't watching those games. But Glass obviously knows what he can do. And if that's the best he can do, then it's a total waste of money. So I have to assume that he's trying to shoehorn him into some sort of system that he wants to play. But I don't see how he can actually do that. I actually think he will score goals, but you're absolutely right. Not the way we are currently utilising him. Like Gam was talking about it when we were coming out of the game, or maybe Bones was saying, like at some point he's almost dropping it in the field just to get the ball. But then if we do turn it over, there's no one there. Yeah, exactly. And he's, he's not quick enough to, say, for example, we do turn it over and the ball gets out to Samuels. There's absolutely no danger Ramirez is getting up into the box to then be on the end of across that Samuels is putting because Samuels is away, the ball's in, nobody's in the box, and we're all getting on everyone's back. And even worse with that setup, Jet's not exactly making up for that either. You know what I mean? It's not so Jet's then making that run in because Ramirez has maybe come deep to turn the ball over. Well, the issue is no one's making those runs beyond him. Um, but I agree. I mean, I didn't, I didn't expect I'd be the first person to bring up this name on this podcast, but I think back to when Lee Miller played for us. You know, I, I liked Miller a lot, and but Miller did a lot of donkey work, roughly about 40 yards out of goal, whether it was being a hold-up man or being, being, the, being the target man. The difference between Lee Miller and Christian Ramirez is Lee Miller was a hell of a lot better at that role than Christian Ramirez. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's boggling. Um. With every passing game, I'm getting a little bit less convinced that Ramirez is up to it, but I will appreciate that he is not being given the uh, the greatest of opportunities right now either. The other thing as well is that Lee Miller was playing alongside somebody. Generally speaking, Lee Miller was never playing a solo number nine role. He always was playing up top with somebody else. So he was able to come in and do that kind of work, knowing full well that somebody was making those runs in behind him, whether it was Mackey or a Chris McGuire or inserts you know fucking genetic striker here there was always somebody doing Poor it christians <laughs> yes 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 so i don't think they played together actually it's probably not but it's a good reference i like it um and, and you're right gab it's, it's, it's becoming a little bit odd because I, I still can't really make my mind up about ramirez because i feel that it's really hard to judge him at the moment based on basically the lack of service he's being given to operate with and the way we're playing, I don't think it's helping him. Now, notwithstanding that, that header in the first half. This is the first time I've sworn on the podcast, but that header was fucking rank. <laughs> I don't know what he was attempting to like. The, the movement he makes to try to head it in that direction is fine if he's at like you know the front post. It's fine but, if he's clearing it. Well, yeah, yeah, true. Actually, it's a great defensive header. I don't know. <sighs> Yeah, there's nothing good you can say about that. And then it becomes harder and harder because there were you didn't get many chances. And if that's the best you can do with the chances, then it's going to make me look stupid in a month or so when I said I think he'll get goals. Well, I think as well. I mean, I read somewhere describe it as well. He, he got his angles all wrong. I was like, I think that just shows the standard of math 
in America, if that's the case. Um, but, but all seriousness, though, is it a bit of him snatching at it in a way because he's now getting super anxious because he's not scored? Well, he's scoring against Ross County, but chances are becoming very you know thin on the ground for him. And it almost felt to me like he just got like super anxious as it came across, and he just like just didn't know what the fuck to do with it. I think that's totally valid, and I think you, it's going to have an impact, a sort of ripple effect through the team because he's not scoring, so he's going to be anxious. The guys up front are conscious of the fact that we're not scoring and we're conceding, so I think that probably breeds a, a little bit of nervousness because you think, well, I really need to get this because we're absolutely not keeping a clean sheet, you know. And then it uh, trickles down to the guys at the the back are maybe a bit nervous about the defending because you know the guys can't scoring, so it, it does kind of impact the team as a whole. But I think you're absolutely right. I, have to, I don't know if you can try too hard, but sometimes he just looks a little panicky in the ball. And I don't actually think that he's a bad player. I, I just think he is in that sort of period of his Aberdeen career where nothing's really sitting for him or happening for him, and he's desperate to make amends. But maybe sometimes, and that you mentioned last week. Maybe taking him out the firing line might be the answer. Although, I guess Watkins didn't make the squad, so maybe that option was taken away from Glass. For me, I think uh, I don't think it's unfair to say that there's a lack of composure when it comes to Christian Ramirez. It's maybe being unfair because this is hard for any striker when you're getting just very few chances. But when he gets one, I'm not convinced he's ever going to take it. At the moment, he's not sitting for me in Adam Rooney territory, where you kind of felt right, you know. He's, he's putting that away every time. Um, but again, I think it's really difficult to judge him right now because I think, in fairness to him, I think he put in a good shift at the weekend. I think he, he, he tried, he put himself about. He did come deep and he, he took the ball into the feet and in the chest and tried to play people in. He was still willing to work, um, which I think is what we were expecting to see anyway based on all the reports out of the US before he signed that that's what we were going to get as a guy who would work. But I am just wary that he's going to start getting really anxious about opportunities that come his way now. And that's just, that's not going to, um, not going to potentially breed results. But the problem now, of course, now is, you know, how do we decide to change things up? Um, one thing I thought, and I, I want to throw this out to you guys. I, I read a lot of criticism after the game on on Twitter um, about Joe Lewis's role in the goal. And I wanted to kind of get your guys' feel on that. I haven't seen it back, but at the time, I was just surprised it went in. It wasn't, I mean, it was in the bottom corner, but Lewis's starting position, certainly, if I can recall it correctly, looked like he was more over to his right-hand side rather than in the centre. And it just looked like it kind of, as in when you see his outstretched arm, it looks like it is past the post. Therefore, he has that position covered. It just kind of looked like it... It trundled through. We're all watching and thinking, that's fine. And then before you know it, it's under Lewis and it's in the back of the net. I absolutely, I don't think I can go as far as to say that's his fault. I really don't agree with that. But I don't know, maybe it's just, I would hold Lewis in pretty high regard. I would say pretty much all of the time he's played for Aberdeen, I think he's been excellent. I appreciate he has absolutely made mistakes as everyone does. And it's maybe just, I'm a, it feels like last season, 18 months ago, he'd have been saving that all day long. He just doesn't seem to be, or I don't think he's on the level he has been before. Now, I might be really just overly critical. It just feels like there was a period where it didn't really matter what came at Lewis. It never got past him. Um, and Saturday, maybe it's just the fact that it kind of trundles in. You always think the keeper should get that. That's maybe not fair, because like I say, it was pretty accurate right in the bottom corner, and I guess that is quite difficult to get to. 
and yeah, at the time I was annoyed, and I suppose probably still am annoyed. I'm watching it as we speak. Um, it's hard to describe. With these kind of goals, typically you'll see like the keeper making like a move one way, and that like knocks the balance off. I don't see that happening. One thing I would say to this is that both Declan Gallagher and Calvin Ramsey make it incredibly easy for Stevie May to cut in. Oh, yeah, so the reason I asked the question is because I saw so many people, you know, criticising Lewis today, and I thought, well, actually, hang on. The goal aside, I don't think Lewis had very much to do, actually, in the entire game yesterday. So there wasn't like there was obvious mistakes or obvious errors, and I felt his distribution was actually okay. Yesterday, I can't remember any point where there was a kick out or a throw out where I thought that didn't look right or that looked terrible. I went back and watched it again as you were doing just now, Gav. And if you actually watch it really closely, when Stevie May takes his foot back to hit it, Lewis does actually make a step to his left. Because if you actually look at it naturally from Lewis's position, he's got Gallagher and Ramsey right in front of him. And I think it's natural for Lewis to assume that the ball is going to... The only place May can try and put it is to curl it to, to Lewis's left, his left-hand post. And I actually think Stevie May kind of does him a little bit by screwing it back near post. And he gets fortunate because the ball goes through Gallagher's leg. But I think he's actually, I think Lewis has taken one step to the left. He's been wrong-footed a little bit with it. It's made it difficult for him to get across. And I don't think you can necessarily blame Lewis for anticipating it's going to go to his left. I think that if you look at the back, to me, that's the natural place May is going to try and bend that. And he kind of just gets done by it. And in reality, I saw one of the angles from behind the goal. And it squeezes right in at the corner. And I, I can't decide. When I first saw it yesterday, I thought it was Lewis's issue all day long because it felt like, like I said in the intro, it kind of crept in in slow motion. But looking back on it, I'm not sure he just doesn't get done by by him cutting it to the near post and just can't quite get himself down and across to it quickly enough. I'm not entirely sure if it really is Joe Lewis's fault with that goal. I think Galker needs to do way more to stop the shot coming in. I think Lewis is really unlucky because Stevie May put it between the posts, which is not the Stevie May we know and love. Was it you that he was noising up just uh, afterwards? Hi, <laughs> <laughs> big man Stevie May picked like four OAPs in the main stand. <laughs> I don't know what his deal was. He didn't even get that bad a reaction when he, like, I, I thought he was garbage. He was a waste of time and money, but it doesn't put me up and down. I didn't really feel like the... The crowd was, it's like Stevie Mays is just meh. There was more people shouting at the right back than people thought was Ricky Foster. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say one thing. I didn't mind Stevie May when he was here. I felt he was kind of hard done by a little bit by McInnes dropping him out of the squad when him and Cosgrove were looking relatively decent and putting Greg Stewart back in. And from that point on, it was ties. He definitely wasn't the type of player that he was when he went to England. I think his injuries had also done him by that point. I have no bad thing to say about Stevie May at all first time here. Craig Bryson, on the other hand, right? Because I noticed today that Stevie May tweeted out something saying like, so it was his 50th goal or something for St. Johnson today and say, what a way to get 50. And Craig Bryson just quote tweeted it with fucking clapping emojis. Craig Bryson can go take a running fucking leap, an absolute fucking wage thief, and he can get fucked with stuff like that. Anyway. I'm going to take Craig Bryson off the potential guest list now. Well, unless it's Derby County, he won't be interested. Going back to the original point where it's Lewis's fault, I, I'd wonder if the high standards he set have kind of made him a victim of his own success. But yeah, like I say, I think Ramsey, Gallagher need to do a lot better. Ramsey just jogs back, doesn't even try and put a tackle in. Gallagher easily shows him inside. Um, so yeah, Lewis is very low on my on my list of culprits when it comes to that goal. It's always easy to pick on the keeper, isn't it? Because it, 
he's literally the last man in that scenario. Uh, I think you're right. It would appear that he's become a scapegoat now. Yeah, I think his standards maybe do help for that, but you're right. I mean, yes, maybe he could have done a little bit better, but there's no way that that is just, you know, the ball doesn't go in just because it's down to him. It's pretty poor how it ends up uh, actually that he's, you know, he's having to do his job. It's pretty poor how it gets to the defenders. Agreed. The, the one thing I've given Calvin Ramsey's defence, Gav, is he looked absolutely done. For like the last 20 minutes when I was watching it, I thought he looked like he needed hook because he just looked like he was he, he was done. He was he was out on his feet. And I think that you can that's also part of the reason the goal comes about because the goal get, the ball gets hoofed up the park by Booth, I think. Ramsey kind of just makes a really a really sloppy attempt to kind of clear it, I think, or control it. And I think it's, it's just tiredness. It has to be tiredness. And that's when it bought, drops to me and that's where it then develops. And yeah, it, it is what it is, I guess. Obviously, last night, today, there's been an unmitigated amount of stuff on social media about what that defeat means, the manner of it, the Stephen Glass kind of experiment, as people want to call it. I mean, I think I said it to somebody else today on Twitter, you know, like we're a relatively level-headed podcast, so I, I apologise to people out there who want to hear, you know, Arsenal fan TV or something here. Um, but at the same time, we're entitled to call out when things are not good enough. And for me, yesterday was not was not good enough. No, I, I don't think anyone could possibly disagree with that statement. It was it was woeful. Um, there is, there's no really... There's no way to sugarcoat that. For what it's worth, for anyone that does listen to this, changing the manager was the right thing to do, in my opinion. This may or may not prove to be the right choice, but it doesn't then mean that people should be lording it up and saying, oh, well, I told you so, because we weren't getting anywhere under the previous manager. So made a change. Yeah, it's not going particularly well so far. However... It's early days yet, and I was just having a look at the table. We're five points off the bottom, we're five points off the top. So the weekend was annoying because we dropped three points. Uh, yeah, we dropped three points. And actually, the, you know, Hearts and Hebs dropping points on the Saturday was annoying. Rangers dropping points, Celtic dropping points. So the weekend has actually become worse than it was when we left with Audrey on Saturday. But the bottom line, in my opinion, is jumping up and down at this stage, I don't really see what the point is. It's not any worse than it was before, and there's time to turn it around, in my opinion. Now, if we get to sort of turn of the year and we're still in this kind of rank form and we're down at the bottom, yeah, that's a totally different situation to be in. And my sort of final point on this is, and I am in this camp, I think he's getting a bit more grief because there's absolutely no way he was the outstanding candidate or whatever the quote was. He's here because of the link with Atlanta and the chairman, that's my opinion. I know I'm not alone in that. And therefore, rightly or wrongly, that leads to additional scrutiny and people are going to be quicker to uh, to turn against him. It's kind of where I'm, I'm seeing it. So I'm not in the opinion that anything needs to change yet, but I am of the opinion that it's, it's not good enough. But to be fair, if Stephen Glass was to listen to this, he's not an idiot. He's going to know it's not good enough. I tweeted from the stadium that that was as bad as anything we saw last season. And I will quite frankly stand by that, but that should not be interpreted as me saying that should not be as interpreted as me saying glass out or anything like that or anything as extreme as that. I'm just saying what I saw. I saw a team devoid of any inspiration or any idea. We set out to be a, a pretty positive voice in terms of uh, the admin support. Um, 
not that we speak for the sport, we speak for ourselves, but you know. But yeah, we can't we can't sit here and be blind and say that things are going great when you see performances like that. And the concerning thing for me is the best performances of the season have been when the team were pretty much just cobbled together and thrown, thrown in the deep end. And now Glass made a big point that he wanted time to work with them on the training ground. They've had two good weeks now, and it seems like we've regressed. Yeah, I, I mean, this is the joy about us having multiple logins to the same Twitter account, because I think I had to caveat very quickly afterwards, Gav, what you were saying. I mean, because from my perspective, right, that wasn't as bad as anything we saw last season, because I can point to, you know, getting humped 4-1 by Ross County as being a worse performance than yesterday, right? But it was still a piss-poor performance yesterday. Let's not beat around the bush with that. But at the same time, and I don't want to keep on harking back about the previous manager, because for everyone at the back who has yet to understand this in the Aberdeen support, Derek McInnes is gone, all right? Stop comparing, you know, what Glass is doing to Derek McInnes and whether this would happen if McInnes was here or not. McInnes is gone. That part of our history has gone with him. We're in a different place now. We're in a different situation. I will say it until my dying breath, getting rid of Derek McInnes was absolutely the right thing to do when we did it. It had to happen. We were drifting. We were going absolutely nowhere. No subsequent managerial appointment is a cast iron guarantee of success. And I saw somebody tweet out today, and I completely agree with them. Even if we lost every game 10-0 under Stephen Glass got relegated, right? The decision to remove Derek McInnes from his post was still the right decision. Now, whether we fuck it up with our subsequent appointment is a completely different subject matter. On that, though, I will say... Jack McInnes can go and take a long fucking walk off a short pier because in fairness to his dad, his dad has kept a pretty dignified silence about everything that went on at Pataudry and why he was relieved of his duties and all that good stuff. But his son, to be continually out there on Twitter now, still try to like fucking go with the Aberdeen support about stuff is just a complete wrong and, and he should just get fucked. That's all I'll say about that. But for the Aberdeen support who are now continually just want to rail back to, well, oh, this would never have happened under McInnes and all that kind of stuff. Well, there's no saying that it wouldn't have done. I'll point back to us getting scudded five goals to one by St. Johnston with a team that is significantly better than the team we have at the moment that was more gelled together than we have at the moment. Results like what happened yesterday happened under Derek McInnes, and I don't think people should be blind to that just because they have some sort of blind loyalty or some sort of mystique aura about Derek McInnes. I don't understand why there are people in support doing that. I, I just do not get it. It's like people wanting to wish whoever came into the job to fail. And none of us want to see that. Now, Graham, you hit the nail on the head. There are absolutely massive questions to ask about how Stephen Glass got to the position he's in right now. Whether the recruitment process we went through to get him in the door was as thorough as they say it is, and all that good stuff, it still doesn't manifestly change the fact that disposing of Derek McInnes was the right thing to do. Yeah, and nobody's got their crystal ball. So whether you know, even if they did go go through a process and we didn't get Stephen Glass, we could still be in the same position and still be saying it was the right thing to do to change. But I absolutely do agree the results are not good enough. And everyone will have the the sort of the point where they think enough's enough. I'm nowhere near that yet. I can see why people are frustrated. But I do say in another couple of months, if we're still talking about transition and you know, new manager, that the then the, the time is absolutely valid to be saying this is not good enough and how do we address it? 
And the one thing I'm just going to follow this up with to say is, right, again, I've read so many people on Twitter the last few days been like, transition, how long is transition going to be and all this kind of stuff. Transition will take as long as it takes, to be honest, is the answer to that. It's, it's almost a how long is a piece of string type question. But in my mind, there's only one other team in the Premiership this season who are trying to undergo the same sort of transition that we're trying to do at the moment. And that's Celtic. Because Ange Postacoglu came into a team there that was just, it's almost a mirror image about of Aberdeen. Too many guys in there who've probably outstayed their welcome. A squad that's an absolute shambles. Not entirely sure what sort of, what sort of you know style they're meant to be playing in. Any of that type of stuff. And Ange Postacoglu, as has Stephen Glass, in fairness, Stephen Glass has been backed by the board to bring in players, as has Ange Postacoglu, who has spent significantly more money than it's fair to say that Stephen Glass has. They're sitting here right now, at this moment in time, Celtic are sitting one point ahead of us in the league, having won three and lost three, having just been beaten at Livingston this afternoon, and having been beaten at Hearts, both venues where we've not been beaten this season. Transition is not something that will happen overnight. And that, that's a glaring example of it right there, that this is something that's going to take a bit of time to, to come together. and People need to have a bit of patience. But at the same time, I understand it becomes very difficult to have that patience when you're not necessarily seeing something on tangible on the pitch that you can hang your hat on. I think the last thing I would maybe say on the transition is it's really difficult when there's no defined objective or target. What is... So I'm just thinking... I shan't bore people with the ins and outs of my professional life, but if we're going through a transition project, we have a start and there is a defined outcome. And we'll probably not deliver it on time, but there is a defined outcome where everyone can say, yes, actually, that's what we set out to achieve and we've got there, fine. The transition project is over. The, you know, there isn't really anything now, not that you can come out and, you know, obviously you can't say we're going to transition to a winning team because it's not that straightforward. Everyone would do it. You can't really come out and say we're going to transition into 84% possession every match and we're going to have six shots on target, et cetera, et cetera. So I get why people are confused and frustrated, and I include myself in that because there's a period where you think, yes, it's a new manager, new team, fine. You can maybe accept uh, a few bumps in the road. Then there's a period where some people, and it might include the manager and staff and fans, will be saying, oh, transition, it's okay. And others are saying, well, what is this transition? And I think we're probably rapidly approaching the point where there's a, a split in opinion around what the hell is a transition and what are we supposed to get out of this and when are we going to get out of it? And I actually don't think anyone can answer that because it's not really a defined, tangible yes or no, you've completed it. And for a wee while, some people will use it as a free pass not to criticise the manager and they're entitled to do that. And to be fair, the board might just have a longer term view than I do on what a transition is. But at some point, it will come to a head. And if these results continue, then, no, he's not going to be around for very long, is he? There's a lot to dissect there. Um, one thing, I mean, one thing I'll say, again, I think McInnes has said this himself, Derek McInnes was always going to leave in the summer. So regardless of anything, you know, we were always going to have a new manager. It wasn't the case that, you know, if we'd kept him, he'd still be here. If I play devil's advocate for a minute for people who are maybe getting a little bit frustrated with things and are maybe going to slightly more extreme lengths, it's worth mentioning Stephen Glass has been significantly backed. On Saturday, we had two players from Premiership clubs on the bench. Neither of them came up. I know Teddy Jenks was meant to come on, but, you know, Johnny Hayes and now and again, two guys who I think we'd all probably agree are, you know, past their best by date, were both 
preferred options to either of them. At the same time, St. Johnston will look at it and say, well, we lost our two best players on, on deadline day with no chance of replacing them. And it doesn't feel like they've been impacted. And someone's made the correct point that St. Johnston have won more trophies in Aberdeen in the last, what, 20 something years. Uh, the last 30 years, it's three to one. Uh, no, three to two, sorry. Three to two, yeah. So, you know, we've got, we've got no divine right to be beating them, but it's been documented that when it comes to organized sports, generally speaking, wages determine where you finish in the league and determine how results should go. So people, yeah, people have got every right in, in the world to be annoyed with how Saturday went. And like you say, I mean, there's no defined ob- objectives. It's not the job of supporters to be patient when they see nothing in return. And that's likewise, again, like the red shed was pretty quiet. I mean, but how can you expect a support to get behind the team when the team gives them nothing to get behind? So, you know, it's just, it's a frustrating week. And, you know, let's be honest, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the game against Sibirin next week becomes a huge match. Not just the game against Sibirin. I think the whole month of October into November is huge now. Because I think it's season-defining in a way. And it, it feels... I feel somewhat premature and almost into that kind of like pessimistic um, view to be saying that we haven't even completed one of the fixtures yet, um, but this is going to be a season-defining month. But in a way it is, we're going to play all the teams who we would expect to be in and around come the end of the season. We, we, we play Hibs Hearts, we play Celtic Rangers, um, and obviously we play St Mirren uh, at the weekend. This is going to define where we end up, I think, as a season. Because I could see, you know, there, there's a real possibility we come through this without, you know, without a win, without a goal. <laughs> and then we're in real trouble. Or we come through it and we actually find a formula that sticks and that breeds confidence because you've done it against, you know, the, the better teams in, in the league. And in a way, I think it's going to really define where our season ends up. But I think we're probably, I think the three of us are probably in agreement around the fact that I think it's not quite time yet to be, you know, necessarily pulling the bed sheets off the bed and 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 getting the paint out and, and getting the banners ready. But it's it's a it's a worrying trajectory that we're on at the moment that there needs to be addressed. Yeah, we've been solely hung up on the result on Saturday, but the result on Saturday is the continuation of a trend. So it's not yeah. totally knee-jerk, it's one game, but we've been playing well prior to that. It is yeah, it's a continuation of some not great football aside, you know, alongside some pretty poor results. It's not like we've maybe been a little unlucky, but we can all see, well, we absolutely battered that team. It just wasn't our day. We're not really in the games and we're getting the results to show that. So moving on, looking at some other news from Patoja this week, the Aberdeen women picked up another fine 1-0 victory at home against Hamilton Ackies in SWPL1 to maintain their solid start to the campaign. A fine curling effort from new signing Louise Brown on 13 minutes, enough to see the Dons through and pushes the Dons up to second place in the league, tucked in behind Hibs. Although, worth noting, the Dons are one of only three teams to have played three games so far this season. But that victory, it'll be one that Emma Hunter and Gavin Beath will have been keen to get on the board, as Hamilton were also promoted to SWPL1 this season. And so there'll have been a bit of an air of expectation that Aberdeen are going to be beating these teams in and around them. But an impressive start to the season, nonetheless. The side has missed the services of Captain Kelly Forrest and Bailey Hutchison, and last season's top scorer, Francesca Ogilvie, also missed out today. A trip to Spartans next week for the ladies. That'll give the Dons a real measure as to probably where they are this season against an opponent with experience of being at this level for a period of time. But we're sure that Emma Hunter and Gambit's charges will be looking at this as an opportunity to put another three points on the board. 
Looking at the young team, the Dons followed up their impressive 5-0 victory at Hamilton with a 1-1 draw against Dundee United at Cormac Park. United coming into the match high on confidence, having won all four of their opening league games, and it was United who made the breakthrough following a goalless first half, Heenan finding the net for the visitors on 59 minutes. The Dons fought back, though, to earn a point through a fine passing move, concluding with Ryan Duncan and Tom Finlay playing a cute one-two, with Duncan then chopping back inside and slotting home a fine left foot finish, his fourth goal in two games. And an entertaining game between the sides and what was a youthful tie with 19 of the 25 players featuring in the game under the age of 17. And that's an absolute testament to both sides' academies. On Lone Watch this week, Michael Roof got a full 90 minutes in the tank for Falkirk as they fell to a 2-1 defeat at home to Dumbarton. Former Aberdeen youngster Calvin Orsi netting for Dumbarton in that one. Mark Gallagher came off the bench on 76 minutes for Forfar in their 1-1 draw at Cowden Beath. Connor Barra missed out altogether for Kelty Hearts, while Kieran Neguenya was an unused substitute, having moved to Kelty earlier in the week as they ran out 3-0 victors at Albion Rovers to maintain their unbeaten start to the campaign. Elsewhere, Tyler Makaita started for, for Martin United as they drew 2-2 with Cumnick Juniors in the first round of the Scottish Cup. And Jack McIver was in the starting lineup for Huntley as they saw off Hill of Beath Hawthorne 3-0 in the same competition with McIver forced off just before halftime with a bloody nose. Jack Milne also returned to the starting lineup for Brecon City as they trounced Vale of Leith in 5-0. And finally, Luke Turner got his first start for Cliftonville in their 3-1 victory at Dungan and Swifts as they maintained their unbeaten start to the Northern Irish Premiership. And lastly, an announcement this week that Aberdeen, alongside Hearts, Hebs, Dundee and Dundee United were spearheading the commission of independent advisors to assist in a strategic and holistic review of the SPFL with the primary aim of, well, basically finding more cash to be provided to all professional clubs in the Scottish setup. And the review is going to look at four key areas, commercial growth, the SPFL brand, the SPFL structure, governance, organization, resources and competition, and strategic projects. Now, on that last point, guys, I think this is kind of an interesting move by, by this set of clubs, I guess. What are your kind of thoughts on this? What do you think we're, we're maybe going to see off the back of it? Well, my question, first of all, would be, is the old 11 to 1 voting system still a thing in, in Scotland? It is in relation to certain matters. Do these issues fall under that umbrella? That umbrella? I can tell you, I don't sit on the SPFL board. Um, if that, because if that's the case, then you know this is a this will be a nice little uh, presentation. It's probably where it'll begin, where it'll end. I guess you know the nice thing about Scottish football these days is we've got chairman or people involved in clubs, and you look at those five especially that are not really the bootlicking kind of chairman that we've had in, in past days, where you know everything has been done. Uh, to be catered towards the old firm, regardless of how it uh, affects uh, those teams. So, yeah, in that sense, it's positive. Um, I just, like all things in Scottish football, I just wonder um, if it's actually going to lead to anything actually tangible. Yeah, I would agree with you. I would question whether anything actually comes out of this. Or to rephrase that, I, I will not be surprised if there are some useful points, observations and suggestions made. I would be surprised if anything can actually be changed. I think the interesting thing is certainly that obviously ourselves, Hibs and the two Dundee clubs are or are owned by or have owners with huge American influence on them. And so I do wonder if we might, you know, start. To, I wonder if these clubs are looking at this from an, uh, you know, from a, a very American perspective around maximizing that kind of commercial 
you know, saleability of the league and all that kind of good stuff. I mean, I think that's an area that, that you know, we would all agree. And I think anybody who watches or who holds Scottish football dear to their hearts would admit that the current, the, the way that the the powers that be at the moment sell our game is absolutely atrocious. And there are some real obvious fixes for them as far as that goes. Um, and so I hope if nothing else, we start to at least see that we try and do something, A, a bit different with our broadcasting deals. For the life of me, I cannot believe that the best thing we could do is just sign back up with Sky again. I'd like to understand who they kind of actually invited to tender for that particular contract. I think we would probably all agree that I thought BT, while they had their faults, I thought they were much more interested in the Scottish game. I thought they gave us a much more, I thought they gave us a fairer shake. I thought they actually tried to, you know, to try and get involved with Scottish football to an extent. Sky is just a fucking afterthought. I mean... Dun- Sky have been amazed today to find out there were actually two teams in Dundee. I think you're on the broadcast and your BT point's valid, but as a lot of people made quite a reasonable point at the time, if it was that important to them, they'd got it. So you're absolutely right. The coverage was better. I genuinely think they were more interested in it, but they weren't so interested that they decided to prioritise it. So it's, you know, you're right, it was better, but it's kind of a moot point. And I'm guessing the answer to who did they go to was probably Sky and BT. And Sky picked it because, well, they've lost so much of the other games that they used to show in the leagues, etc. And, you know, they need a wee filler before, I don't know, Super Saturday, whatever pitch it is with Burnley and Southampton or something. <laughs> so, yeah, I pretty, I'm pretty negative about all this stuff to one side. I just don't see how things will change. And the only other point I would add was... So as Hearts, Hibs, Dundee and Dundee United, that's great. Obviously, there are a lot more clubs you know, in the division, never mind in the, the structure. So I'm kind of hoping that we've not just gone out the five of us to say, oh, look, we're bigger and better, we're going to do something. I'm kind of hoping they're having conversations with other teams and they've said, that's absolutely fine, boys, you run with it for a start, put your name on it. But you know, there, there's a bit of support behind you because if you've only got five you're not going to get very far. Yeah, I think in fairness to that, it's not as though the five have gone rogue and are doing it. It's been given the blessing of the SPFL to go out and do it. Um, so, you know, it's not like we've just suddenly gone, fuck it, we're a way to go and do this ourselves, lads. Um, it's, it's, it's been done with the blessing of, of, of the organisation itself. Um, Gav, we all want better for Scottish football, but um, my pessimistic, sceptical Aberdonian way tells me that, uh, that there are two teams and a whole organisation that pander to them that are not going to be interested in any kind of reform. But hopefully, hopefully, yeah, maybe, as you say, maybe some public pressure, some enhanced scrutiny can uh, can help bring about that change. I guess it depends. So, Gav, you, you just used the word reform, and I want to really touch on that really quickly, because for me, there's like a few different things that, that are obviously being encompassed here. One, there's absolutely the, the, the brand, the inverted commas, of the SPFL. For one thing, they need to stop trying to compete with leagues that we are never going to be like stop trying to pretend we're the English Premier League or stop trying to pretend we're like Serie A or like stop trying to do that. Try and sell the stuff about Scottish football that's unique. And there's a lot about Scottish football that actually is, is unique. And we kind of need to almost be in a way able to kind of take the mickey out of ourselves a little bit with that as well to an extent. We should be like playing up the kind of blood and guts kind of element to it a little bit. We should be playing up the the support 
that there is there amongst amongst certain teams. We should be absolutely trying to get him away from the fact that our ultimate selling point within any market is the two Glasgow teams. We need to be highlighting there's much more to our league than just those two. One thing I'm wary about about this whole thing is this idea about they, they talk about the structure of the organization and stuff. I don't want this to become one of these talking shops where bizarrely the blame for the failures at the top end of the Scottish game get laid at the doors of the teams in the lower leagues that it becomes you know Forfar's fault or Albion Rovers' fault or Cowden Beast's fault or something like that and there's this idea that there's too many clubs in the setup and so we should be reducing the league to kind of like you know two professional leagues and everyone underneath that can just kind of fall into kind of part-time stewardship and all that kind of stuff that better not be the way that this goes because you know I, t- I talked about somebody during the week the fact of the matter is that football is is scotland's national game and there are a host of professional and semi-professional clubs up and down the country and each one of them generally speaking across the board does a tremendous amount of work in their own community and they work within their own community for for a particular you know they, they provide opportunities to people in the local community they provide an output for a lot of people in the local communities They've all got historical significance throughout the whole of Scottish football, and it would be a crying shame for this to become one of these. There's too many Angus clubs. So Montrose are both for for breaking. They should always merge and become Angus United or something. That's not the issue with the Scottish game, as I see it. No, I totally agree with that. I maybe wouldn't have done 10, 15 years ago, but at the end of the day, who is anyone to tell a club we think you're insignificant, so go and merge with these guys. Anyone who's supporting a club, it doesn't matter who they are, it's going to mean as much as to them as Aberdeen mean to me. And if in 10 years' time, we, you know, we've tumbled down the divisions, it's all gone horribly wrong, still doesn't mean that we're garbage and we should just be mashed together with someone else. Your team is your team. You're absolutely right, ignoring the history and the fact that it doesn't really matter how big or small you your team really is, or people think it is, they're still doing an awful lot of good, and a lot of people get a lot out of that. Sweeping up a few teams into one, I'm not really for that. I actually don't think the outcome of this necessarily needs to be to grow the revenue at the top. You know, Yeah, I'd like Aberdeen to have more money, but I'm not actually so sure that's the most critical thing. If we get more money into the game in general, then that has to have a benefit, because whether that means... The, the teams lower down the divisions can maybe afford to keep, you know, say Falkirk, for example, had to get rid of their academy or elected to get rid of their academy for costs and sort of bureaucratic reasons, etc. But if some of these other teams can maybe keep that going, then you hope, yeah, that does mean that maybe the likes of Aberdeen or the bigger teams can then buy these players. But hopefully we're buying players from teams that can reinvest and so on and so forth. And I know it's a bit sort of a utopia here, but you keep a bit of money in the game for a start um, in Scotland, maybe improves the lower teams, improves teams at the top, and ultimately maybe has a positive influence on the national team as well because there's a pathway for players within Scotland instead of the usual, you know, getting getting to, like Ramsey or Mackenzie, getting for a season and then they disappear. They don't necessarily push on down south and we're, we're in trouble because we've lost players that we might benefit from for a couple of seasons. So, yeah, no to... Getting rid of teams, yes, to trying to get some more cash in with a view to 
everyone actually getting a benefit from. There's no point in the so-called bigger teams getting richer and the other teams getting poorer. I completely agree with every point that has been made so far, although I will just pull back the curtain a little bit when Graham talks about the meaning of Aberdeen to him on a Saturday as Stevie May was wheeling away <laughs> to the main stand to uh, pick a fight with the with the OAPs. I do believe he turned to me and said, and I quote, so when are we going to pull the trigger on those Inverurie local season tickets? <laughs> I've been saying that for goodness knows how many years it's never happened. So, yeah. But fundamentally, nobody has the right to tell anyone that their team is not important. Presumably, all the, I think it's the Lloyds who've been appointed to do this. Presumably, all they need to really do here is just have a front page that says, sack this man. And there'll be a picture of Neil Doncaster. And then I think that that'll probably help quite a lot, to be honest. Well, I mean, I know that is definitely something that Graham would sign his name to. I am not alone in that point of view. <laughs> so talking about getting rid of Neil Doncaster, um, probably time to have a wee look at the Fantasy Football Scotland League, I think, for this week. So good week for the Sir Alex 11, Richie McLeod, 52 points. Races to the top of the table, 388 points. In second place, somebody's just done emojis. Is that... What are they? Are they birds? Are they eagles? Are they two eagles? They're eagles or turkeys? Yeah, turkeys, maybe. He's an Aberdeen supporter. Jack Curran, 59 points. 387, just one point in it. And then Dinamo Dreadful, Callum Wilson, tucked in behind on 385. Probably good that fourth place... Do you think that's the Newcastle striker? <laughs> Well, he's clearly spending more time doing his fantasy football team than he is practicing for Newcastle on that base. Probably just as well that the fourth place didn't come out of the top three because I don't think we could use that name. Uh, I, I do like doing this heart attack with Lothian in 11th. I, I love the name. Filthy Gelfies in 13th. That's a, that's a censor job. No idea what that's in reference to. And then one thing I've just noticed, though, in 15th spot, look at that name. Ooh. The, the, the Queen's Eleven. <laughs> Jamie Girdwood, you've, you've just been demoted 100 million points. We got a, we got a sleeper cell in the, in the league. We, we seem to have a sleeper cell. Um, not a bad week for me, actually. I rose up a decent number of places, 44 points, up to number 100 in the league, which is nice. I don't know where you boys are. I can't be bothered scrolling that far I've down. Had, I've had a pretty honking league, 24 points. I had 48 points, and I'm absolutely flying up the table. I am in 176th position out of 246. So that's improving on last week. I'm 125th now. Lovely stuff. But there we go. That's the ABZFP Fantasy Football League. I was going to say get yourself in involved, but I don't think you can anymore. I think the league is now closed. But obviously, if you're in the league, keep an eye on it. There's some good prizes to be won towards the back end of the season. So this weekend, sees us make our first trip to Pays of the season as the Dons travel in search of a much-needed three points, some goals, and a confidence-building result. What are we expecting, guys? Nil-nil. Worth mentioning that St. Mirren, much like St. Johnston this, uh, this past weekend, are still looking for their first league win. So, Jim Goodwin, we're coming for you, mate. I mean, obviously, St. Mirren, they've had a pretty... Uh, how would you describe their start to the season? Average? Well, I mean, so, you know, they finished seventh last season, which is like a... You know, it's their highest league finish since 1989. Started off reasonably well enough. You know, they won all four of their League Cup group games, you know, before they ultimately 
um, went out in the, in the next round, losing on penalties to Livingston. In the league, it's, it's four draws and two defeats. You know, they've lost to Parts and Celtic. They took a real scudding off Celtic once it seemed to appear that it started to click for, for Celtic. But and then saying that, they've managed three successive draws against St. Johnston United and, you know, a fighting 2-2 draw against Hibs at the weekend just passed. In terms of transfers, you know, they've brought in a lot of players who are very familiar to Scottish football. I'm thinking, you know, Charles Dunn from Motherwell, Scott Tanzer from St. Johnston, Alan Power, Greg Kilty, Eamon Brophy uh, from Kilmarnock, and then uh, Curtis Main from uh, Aberdeen via a six-month spell at Shrewsbury that uh, I'm sure is still talked about in, in folklore at the uh, insert name of Shrewsbury's ground here. <laughs> and I guess most importantly in terms of players, you know, for them, they, they retained the services of, um, of both Jamie McGrath and Connor McCarthy, um, resisting advances, if rumours are to be believed, from possibly even Aberdeen and, uh, and certainly Hibbs. Um, so, you know, they're not, it's a part, if you take that Celtic scudding out of the equation, they're not, you know, getting trounced week in, week out. There's probably enough that Jim Goodwin can look at and say that there's something there to build on. And, you know, we've feels like we repeat this every time we preview a game, but I'm sure they're looking at us and thinking to themselves, this could be the game where, you know, our season gets started because this lot look don't look up to it. I mean, in fairness to St. Mirren, it's not a, it's not a particularly kind opening set of fixtures, is it? Hart, Celtic, St. Johnson United and Hibs. You know, they, they could have probably had a slightly easier run of it. So to, to come out of that with four draws and a couple of defeats is probably where they would maybe hope to be there or thereabouts. And I think it's probably fair to say, I think Jim, Jim Goodwin has done actually a pretty good job at, at St. Mirren since he's gone in there. Yeah, overall, uh, yeah, not just taking this season into consideration. I think it is fair to say he's done a decent job. I not pretend to speak for any St. Mirren fans. I have no idea what their aspirations are. So finishing seventh, for example, last season, that feels to me like a pretty decent result. I'm sure plenty of them will have a different point of view, maybe, but uh, he seems to have done a decent job. And you're right, this season, you look at those results, they maybe just sort of caught Celtic on what would appear to be a good day, given that they've been a little bit up and down. Losing to Hearts, that's probably, that's maybe not that surprising. But a decent draw against Hibs uh, at the weekend there is probably not good use for us. Uh, a team that, okay, they've conceded, but they're scoring as well. It feels like it's just kind of a similar review uh, from what we had before we went to St. Johnston. I don't see how we're really going to break them down because I appreciate they're at home, but I don't think that means they're going to be looking at that game thinking, that's great, let's go all out attack. doesn't really feel like that's the way the game is going to go. I appreciate our form's not been great and they might be a little bit more optimistic than they, they should be. I just feel like it's going to play out another game where we're going to pass it side by side, not really look like scoring, but we're absolutely going to give them chances. I will simply say that I will make no comment on the potential impact that Curtis Main is going to have on this game because I did that with Stevie May this past week. And uh, yeah, I'll take I'll take the blame for that one. It's not a particularly happy hunting ground for us either, is it? Um, New Love Street whatever it's called these days uh, it's 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 a it's a stadium that we seem to have really struggled in in recent years which which it, it it's probably the not the worst fixture that glass could have had but if you're going to hand pick one out it's probably not the one he'd go for is it because on the face of it people will say this should be an easy aberdeen victory 
But I think, as we all know, it's it's not an easy place for us to go and get a, to go and get a win. And on the run we're on, it's just going to heighten pressure if we don't come away with three points at the weekend, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't think that's wrong. I think the the longer it goes on, and we are not picking up points, the pressure has to rise. People will be more vocal. Personally, I could maybe temper that a little bit if we. If we played well, we were, you know, maybe just a little unlucky. But if it looked like, okay, there are signs that we're we're starting to improve on the pitch. But basically, if we say we get another, if we get a repeat performance from the St Johnson game, then be really pretty disappointed because there's not really anything you can take if you're putting that out two weeks running. Well, um, looking at that worst case scenario, then it's Celtic next, and things start to look really bleak. Well, on that positive note, predictions. Right, well, there's absolutely no way we're keeping a clean sheet. So, 2-2. Ooh, a Desmond. 2-2. Nice. Uh, goals from... 2-2. <laughs> All four goals scored by St. Mirren. I'm going to say 1-1. No prediction of scorers? No prediction of scorers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buck the trend. I'm going to say the Dons are going to hit, hit a form. Submit in one because we, we ain't keeping a clean sheet <laughs> and it will be Curtis main. Let's just not pretend otherwise. Aberdeen four, Stephen Glass's Showtime Reds. Right, whatever the hell's in that can you're drinking is a school night. You need to uh, put that away. It's a, a lovely, fierce beer, late shift. Not that we do this for the money, but with what extra hallucinogenics in there or something? <laughs> I'm going four one to Dons, uh, Curtis main for Submit Christian Ramirez, double, Marley Watkins and Austin Samuels. Wow, there's absolutely no conviction in your face when you say that. <laughs> I know, I know. So, there we go. Come on, you Reds. So, that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for our exclusive interview with the legendary Ian Jess. And to play us out today, we've got Broken Chanter, otherwise known as David McGregor, formerly of Kid Canaveral fame with his single Extinction Event Souvenir T-shirt, taken from his upcoming second album, Catastrophe Hits. Catastrophe Hits is out on the 29th of October, and if you like what you hear, head over to at Broken Chanter on Twitter, where you'll find details on how you can pre-order your copy of the album, which also has a spiffing physical release on Deluxe Gatefold vinyl. So here's Broken Chanter with Extinction Event Souvenir T-shirt.
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Footstars. Footstars are an Aberdeen-based football coaching company with a particular focus on developing the next generation of young talent from the northeast of Scotland. Specialising in the ages between 2 and 7, Footstars provide an introduction to football in a fun, educational and fitness-focused environment. With classes running at six venues throughout the city, from Banks of Dee to Peter Cooter, seven days a week, we're sure you'll be able to find a class that fits your busy family schedule. Footstars even offer free trials with no commitment. That's right, nothing. Please contact Murray at footstars at yahoo.co.uk to sign your kids up for their first steps in the world of football and to join the Footstars family. That's footstars at yahoo.co.uk. Back of the net. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. We are delighted to continue our series of exclusive interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. And this man was pretty much top of the tree when it came to the guys we wanted to speak to. A true legend of Aberdeen Football Club. It's Ian Jess. Ian Jess, welcome along to the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Nah, Ian, honestly, the pleasure's all ours. Thanks for taking the time to join us. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah. The sun's shining here in Spain, so um, I can't complain. It was a little bit of rain this morning, but yeah, we need to cool down somehow. So only last five minutes, and then it's it's, it's uh, the sun's shining again. So. Not a complaint that we've got here, that's for sure. No, it's really well the weather, the weather in Scotland. You know, that's that's one of the reasons I sort of left anyway. So. <laughs> I, I like the blame. sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly Ian like we're absolutely thrilled to have you on this is going to be our landmark 10th episode of the show and what better way for us to celebrate that little milestone by by having you on so let's just get straight to it so obviously born in December 1970 uh, you grew up in the the wee Aberdeenshire town of, of Port Soy and I guess was football always your kind of first sporting love yeah uh, I mean since I was four or five years old I was I was always kicking a ball about and uh, where my actual family home was was right next to the playing park at Port Soy. So my mum always knew where where I was, whether it be rain, snow, hail, sunshine. Uh, I would always be in the park, um, usually usually on my own if the weather was bad. So uh, just with my football, it was just um, it was just something that I always wanted to do. So um, it started at a very very early age for me. And I think I remember reading somewhere, or maybe listened to something with you before. You were a wee bit of a glory hunter, I think, as a as a kid. Yeah, I supported uh, <clears throat> anybody who was winning. Uh, obviously, Aberdeen so in the in the eighties, the Fergie era. But also, I also did a wee spot with Dundee United when they when they were winning European European uh, cups as well. So um, yeah, I was a bit of a glory hunter. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that Celtic was the first team that I supported when I was seven or eight. But I think that was because of my brother. My brother was a Celtic fan, and still is. So yeah, I was a glory hunter. So. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll admit it, yeah. And I guess then, though, if you had a wide parameter of teams to watch, then who was your kind of first footballing heroes? Do you think you can remember? I was only one when I was when I was at that that age, um, and that was kind of Elglish. Um Yeah, he was he was the one that I think every Scottish schoolboy at that in that era looked up to. You know, Kenny Elglish was the the best player. In, Arguably the best player that Scotland's ever produced as well. Absolutely world class. So, um, yeah, 
and that's probably one of the reasons as well as a Celtic fan as well uh, when I was seven, eight, nine years old um, because I kind of dug at that time and Liverpool as well. Interesting you say that because we've had also we've had yourself and Lee Richardson on last week, uh, Duncan Shearer before all of you have mentioned Kenny Dalglish as, as heroes, so it shows kind of the influence that guy had on a whole generation of footballers. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it, uh, I, I, I'll tell you a story about uh, Ken Dalglish because, like, uh, I was in, I was actually at Hamden, um, and we were uh, I was injured at the time in Aberdeen. I think it was might have been the semi final, and I was sitting sitting waiting for the game to start and. I looked to my right and here's Kenny Douglish coming coming along my uh, my row with Teddy McDermott and I get up to sort of um, let him pass and he never sort of seen me but Terry McDermott did and then as he sat down Terry McDermott then told Kenny Douglish that that's Ian Jess sitting there and I got a lot away from Kenny Douglish so that was like that was huge for me um, I don't know what age I was at that time but you know for him to actually know and recognise who I was, was, well, yeah, you can only imagine it was just something else. So you talked there about football being obviously your first love. Um, can you like pinpoint or remember a time when you thought that you might have the ability to go on and make a career as a professional footballer? And were you always like a kind of attacking flair player? Um, I don't think there was any any time that I actually thought, you know, that I was going to, it was something that I always wanted to do, you know, and I've been lucky enough to, uh, fulfill that that dream that I had as a child. So, you know, it was just something that that I would do, and you know, whether I became a professional footballer or not, it would be something that I would always have done at, at some sort of level. So, I was just lucky enough to sort of become a professional and be good enough to sort of become that. So, um, but that was a lot of hard work, especially when I was a kid. You know, that was a lot of hours and practice, and you know, just kicking my ball about, and uh, whether it be on my own or with my mates at school. Um, it was just something that, that I always wanted to do. So I don't think there was actually another a time that I thought, well, maybe I'm good enough, you know. It was just something that so I just materialised and I, I got the opportunity to do it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's every boy's dream at some point in Scotland, isn't it? Um, you ended up on an S-form deal with um, a certain club in Glasgow called Rangers <laughs> uh, from the age of 13, but you end up being let go by Rangers in, in 1987 before you signed up um, at Ibrox, were there other clubs that were interested? Do you have other options? Uh, well, so Aberdeen was interested as well, but, um, you know, Rangers were the ones that sort of asked me first, and I, was, I got my morals, and, um, you know, it was just they offered me that opportunity first, and um, that's why I ended up sort of signing schoolboys for Rangers. Um, Rangers and Aberdeen were the only sort of teams that were so sort of interested when I was when I was when I was at, um, at school. And uh, that's the only reason I actually signed for Rangers was because they were the first the first, first to ask, um, you know. And um, everybody makes mistakes in life, you know, and it all worked out for the best. And obviously Aberdeen sort of came back and, and gave me the opportunity to, to become a professional footballer. So that was, you know, I'm sort of blessed in, in that part. Yeah, well, it's fair to say that I already got the peak of your powers, so it all worked out for the best, didn't it? And I guess were you always that kind of attacking-minded kind of flair player going up through through the youth ranks as well? Was that always the kind of role you you were in? Yeah, I was always sort of, um, sort of up front, sort of creative type player, so uh, goal scoring. I mean, right through sort of playing playing it uh, playing from a school, um, sort of playing up front or midfield. I was always an attacking role. 
um, creating goals, scoring goals. So it was always something that I wanted to do. I don't think I'm the best defender in the world because I didn't like the tackle. So <laughs> I'd no other option to be a creative or a, a goal scorer and a midfielder or a tackle. So um, my defensive capabilities, uh, yeah, very few and far between. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who vouch for that. So I think I, 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 as well, I think I read somewhere that, you know, Rangers had actually made the decision to decide to, to let you go. But then they came up north to play uh, Devon Vale, I think, in a, in a friendly friendly match. And they, you know, persuaded you to still come along and play in that game, despite the fact that they'd already made the decision to let you go. And you come off the bench, you set up three goals um, in the second half. And at that point, Rangers kind of changed their mind and, and tried to persuade you to stay. But you you turned that opportunity down flatly. Yeah. Um, so I played in the game. Um, and obviously, they did actually made the decision that they weren't going to offer me a uh, made a contract so um, it was Peter McCloy who was a reserve manager at the time he sort of pulled me aside after the game and said look uh, we're not we're not going to be off on the anything and I was like okay obviously extremely disappointed not knowing where you know if I was ever going to get the opportunity so I'd become a professional footballer so uh, it was actually that evening uh, when I was in my, at home and uh, they actually phoned the house to sort of say look we're going up to Inverness he did really well today. Uh, we would like you to play in the game. And um, I just said no. Um, I just thought they've made the decision. And, you know, I just said no. And um, my mum was there in the house. And she says it's one of the proudest things I've ever ever seen and heard you do. Uh, you know, for you to do that, it's, you know, it's 16, 15, 16, to knock back that opportunity. But uh, it was just, they had made the decision. And uh, yeah, I just said, no, I'm not coming. So, you know, and not knowing what my future was going to be. Yeah. I mean, I think it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of guts at that age to to turn around to a club like, like Rangers at that point and say, you know what, you've made your call and no, I'm not going to come. I mean, it, it says a lot about your character, even at that young age to, to turn that back down again. And do you think though that <clears throat> your spell in their youth setup, and a, this is definitely going to be the last question I ask about Rangers on this. Do you think though that that, <laughs> that spell helped you, especially kind of playing in the central belt at that time um, when you eventually did make the step up into the professional game. It's a different environment to play youth football in. Isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's totally a different environment. I mean, I mean, I was from a little fishing village in the northeast coast. So I used to go down um, just in the school holidays and any opportunity that I got to sort of go down and just play for the youth team. So I remember playing in, uh, I think I maybe have been 13 or 14 um, and playing against Celtic on an ash pitch. And there must have been at least five deep at either side of the pitch, supporters. And I'd never, ever seen that in my life. And uh, I played right wing, and I remember getting spat on by the guy I was up against, spat on, head-butted me in the back of the, the head. Um, so this is just, you know, it was just... I've never, 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 you know, seen that or, you know, been involved in something like that ever in my life. So, yeah, maybe it's sort of stood me in good stead for, you know, sort of going to Glasgow and knowing what to expect. Not that sort of I ever got spat on or headbutted, but, um, you know, that sort of environment, that hostility, you know, it was just, just something that, you know, I'll never forget, you know, and maybe it was a big learning curve for me. So maybe it was a good thing from that aspect. I mean, it's not often I get to trade like war stories with a, an Aberdeen legend, but 
I always remember going down, we played the, I played for Westall Boys and we were under 12s. We played Possel YMCA in the Scottish Cup. And um, Possel at the time, they were Kenny Dalglish's juvenile team. And they'd not been beaten at home at any age group or something daft like this, basically since Kenny Dalglish had been there. Something ridiculous record like that. <clears throat> and we turn up on the Sunday, we go out, and honestly, there must be about 500, 600 folk watching this game. It's an under-12 Scottish Cup tie, you know? And um, I'll never forget this. I'd been diagnosed with asthma that week <laughs> of that game, right? And I played, at the time I was playing uh, right back, and uh, I'd, I'd had to go about, I don't know, halfway through the first half to go and grab my inhaler. And I go and grabs it, and I, I'm starting to just take it. And there's, there's this handful of guys in the stand, grown men, grown men at this, are calling me, like a wee poof and everything for like the fact I have to go and get like my inhaler and stuff. And you know when you're just like, what's going on? Like this is just madness. Anyway, long story short, we win the game. I think it was three one we won, and our coach got bricked leaving Possel. <laughs> <laughs> and you know he's just like, it's just such a different different place to be playing. It's a different yeah, the, the passion and hostility yeah, but um, yeah, it's. Yeah, big learning curve for you as well. Oh, unreal, unreal. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I don't think you need to go to Glasgow to get those kind of memories. That sounds like a Monday night league game at goals to me. Well, that's also yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it probably happens in, happens in Aberdeen as well. I remember playing uh, playing for the school, Banff Academy, um, in the North of Scotland Cup, and we were playing a semi-final against Northfield Academy. They were playing in uh, our patch, Banff Academy, and uh, we won the game 6-0, and I scored 6 after the game, all the Northfield guys were waiting outside to, to give me a doing. <laughs> I wonder how many of them were season ticket holders. And, 10 years I, I mean, it probably yeah. Well, I would have been I would have been an S from Rangers signing at that time as well. So that probably the six goals and myself <laughs> being a S form signing, you know, that's sort of put together didn't sort of bode well for me. But I managed to creep out the back door, so <laughs> the Northfield boys never got me. So, but maybe they are season ticket holders now. So. <laughs> Rogues reversed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Ian. So after you're released by Rangers, um, kind of another significant name in Scottish football, George Adams, uh, picks you up yeah. and invites you to join uh, Aberdeen, where Teddy Scott, I think it's fair to say, had a big influence on on getting young players to sign up as well. So, I mean, Teddy Scott, you know, he's he's rightly considered a legend of Aberdeen, and I think there's chat about at the new stadium installing like a Teddy Scott museum or some kind of memorial. For maybe younger listeners, can you give some insight into like what Teddy Scott was, both as a human being and how he um, helped the young lads through into the first team? Well, I've got a lot of lot to thank Teddy for because he was the one sort of persuaded the club to sign me. So uh, first and foremost, but um, I mean Teddy was um, he was just the father figure, you know, for all the young boys that sort of came up from Glasgow. There was a lot of a lot of kids from Glasgow, so we were staying in digs. So. Teddy would always be the one if you had a problem, you would go and speak to him, you know, and he would always be a good, he would always have the ear to listen to you. Um, you know, he would be the one in the morning, he'd be the first one you would see when you went in to get your training kit. You know, Teddy would always be there. You know, he, I don't know, he, he would be in there six in the morning getting things organised for for the youth team and the, and the first team at that time. So, you know, he he just, you know, I think, I think that he said, he ran the club a little bit, not not towards the size and just you know the just the whole organisation of the club, you know, sort of behind the scenes. You know, Teddy was always there. Um, you know, he was he was somebody that I'll always have a lot to thank for. 
Um, you know, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. There's a lot of a lot of youth players at my time, and you know, and, and after my time, that um, that um, everybody would have a good word to say about Teddy. You know, he was just um, a big influence in a lot of a lot of youth players, even the ones that never never actually sort of uh, were lucky enough to become professional footballers. You know, I'm sure they've got a lot of good good words to say about Teddy. You know, um, so yeah, he, he was you know a massive a massive massive influence in my career. And it's a hell of a first team squad that you kind of arrive at Petodre to to have in front of you. You know, you've got the likes of Willie Miller, uh, Alec McLeish, Jim Bett and company are all are all there. Uh, Neil Simpson would have been coming to the end of his his Aberdeen time as well. And the likes of Charlie Nicholas and Hans Heelhouse sign up the following season. I mean, what were your first impressions of these guys when I guess when you joined, but also when you got in about them at kind of training and stuff like that? Well it was, it was just uh, it was a dressing room just full of internationals. So um it just made my life easier. So as in when I broke into the first team, you know, so just to be involved and and playing alongside these players was just, you know, it just made it made your made your role easier, you know, just to sort of go into that environment, you know. But obviously there was, I was still sort of in the reserve dressing room. So I was always sort of, I still had my sort of YTS jobs to do, my Hoover and my uh, picking up the kit and things like that. So I still have to knock on the door before you actually go into the first team dressing room because you sort of, you're scared to go in, you know. It's just, uh, you know, the likes of Willie and and Alec and Charlie and and Jim Bett and Robert Connor, you know, uh, Stuart McKimmy, and they they're all in there. And you, I mean, these are guys you sort of look up to. So, you know, so it was always that sort of nervousness to sort of go into the dressing room. But you know, I was lucky enough to sort of break into the first team so early doors, and um, and the next thing I'm actually sitting sitting with these guys in the first team dressing room. So, uh, but I wouldn't say boot a goose, you know. For the first first couple of months, anyway. <laughs> who uh, who were you charged with in cleaning their boots when you were still doing YTS? We never. We, we always said it was it was uh, two two older guys called George Perry and Charlie, and uh, they were the ones that sort of cleaned the boots, you know. So we had okay. other jobs really, so we would sort of help them out a little bit. But they were sort of, they were always in there and sort of doing the boots. So we'd other things that sort of hoovering, you know, mopping mopping showers and. Picking up the kit, helping Teddy, you know, uh, cleaning the stands. So um, these are all sort of things that I, I don't think it necessarily happens now. Necessarily happens now, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's stands in good stead, you know. So keeping things every uh, clean and um, so a bit, a bit of discipline, you know, which is yeah. which is good. It's kind of like a proper apprenticeship almost, isn't it? Like you said, I don't think that type of thing really goes on anymore in the modern game. Um. Well, it's still, when I was youth coach in Nottingham Forest, they still had to do their jobs, so cleaning boots and things like that. So I was in charge of it, so I had to make sure that all the jobs are done. So, <laughs> um, so I, went, I knew my standards. So the standards had to be set by the young boys at Nottingham Forest. So, uh, so it's still. I, I don't know. I don't know if that still happens now, but things things do change. Maybe at the bigger clubs that doesn't necessarily happen, but um, it does. It, it adds a little bit of discipline, so um, and it keeps them on their toes. Definitely. So, I mean, fast forward a, a pretty short period of time and it's the tail end of the 88-89 season. Alex Smith and Jockey Scott hand you a full league debut at home. Uh, final home game of the season, that campaign against Motherwell. Uh, a memorable 0-0 draw. And then the following week, you come off the bench at Ibrox as the Dons uh, route the home team 3-0. And that wrapped up that campaign. And the Dons finished that season second behind uh, Rangers, losing out in the League Cup or Skull Cup. In, in, in older money uh, the final there to Rangers 3-2 at Hamden that was the second of the kind of trilogy of League Cup finals 
and obviously it's Alex Smith and Jockey Scott who hand you your debut. Um, what was your relation your relationship like with with them both, and what was their attitude like towards blooding young talent coming through the ranks at that time? I had a, I had a great relationship with them both, you know, and uh, Drew Jarvie as well. I mean, they they sort of seen something in me to sort of, to put me in early doors, you know, uh, and which was which was amazing. Um, Alex Smith, I still see as my mentor, you know. Um, a sort of father figure that I looked up to. He was the one that gave me opportunities. So uh, I've got a lot to thank him for as well. And I mean, Jockey and Drew were the ones that sort of did more of the coaching side of things. So I've got a lot to thank them for, you know, the time that they spent with myself and the younger boys like Scott Booth, Stephen Wright, Greg Watson, Graham Watson at that time, you know, um, we've got a lot to thank them for sort of adding their experience and their, their knowledge to our games. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was, yeah, a big shock to me at that time because I was only sort of eighteen and sort of given the opportunity to sort of go into the first team and you know, to have that. And you need something to sort of, as a as an individual to sort of look at a young player and see something that they've got to throw them into that situation, you know, um, to know that they've got the personality and character to actually to to understand it and to to go in and do a job, you know? Um, so, and that's something that Alex Smith and Jockey had, you know, and giving youth players a chance and seeing something that, um, that they thought that, yeah, they can handle the first team experience at such an early age, you know? So, um, yeah, there's a group with, with some good youth players at that time. And, you know, a lot, a lot of this, a lot of us have to, have to thank Alex Smith and Jockey Scott and Drew Jarvie as well uh, for, for giving us that opportunity. Uh, can you remember much about your debut and and that first trip to Ibrox? Uh, I, I can remember the debut, yeah, against Motherwell. Yeah, I was playing right wing, played against Fraser Wishart. Um, uh, I'd not made them three times. <laughs> <laughs> and Fraser, Fraser, after it was a few years after that, Fraser actually sort of told me that, that uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a game that he doesn't want to remember that well. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a nil-nil draw. Um, but then the next game after that was the Dundee, my first goal. It was a 1-0 win against Dundee at home. Um, I mean, I remember the goal. Uh, somebody crossed it in from the right-hand side and I just swept in at the Merkland Road stand. So um, I remember that game, but I can't remember this a Rangers game. Interesting. So, yeah, moving on to the next season, as you mentioned, you just you score your first goal at home to uh, against Dundee. You start again in the quarterfinal League Cup against Sibiran, a 3-1 victory, followed by your European debut um, versus Rapid Vienna at in the UEFA Cup. Uh, the Dons win 2-1 in the first leg, and you start again the following week versus Dunfermline. Somewhat strangely then, you miss out on the squad completely for the 1-0 win over Celtic in the League Cup semi-final at Hamden. Was there any particular reason as to why you missed out on that semi-final? Uh, I don't know. Um, you'd have to ask Alex Smith that one. Can't remember that far back. So I do remember the Rapid Vienna game, the, my first European sort of debut, and it was the first yellow card that I ever got. So you know, I remember that, and it was rightly so as well. It could be, it could have actually been VAR now. It probably been a red. Um, I was yeah, very yeah, uh, petulant and kicking one of their Rapid Vienna players after a, a little bit of frustration. So that was my first yellow card. But um, regarding the semi-final, I'm not too sure. Um, you know, because Alex Smith was sort of very wise. He was, um, you know, he would 
whether he did well or not, he he would just he was just basically sort of guiding you in. So he would leave you out, and obviously at that age, you wouldn't be knocking on the manager's door to ask why you look. I played well last week. Why am I not playing this week? Um, this is the way that he sort of conducted himself with the younger players. He did it with Paul Lambert and St. Mum as well. He would play one or two games and then pull you out because he was just protecting, protecting the younger players. And that was just his way of managing, managing young players at a time. So I would think that because of that semi-final at Celtic, I think, you know, that would probably have been the reason that I wasn't involved. It was probably a time that he thought we're just going to pull him out, pull him back a little bit, you know, and it sort of keeps you on your toes a little bit. So, you know, it's just, you know, you, okay, I've done well last, last week. You know, I'm not playing this week, so I have to do a little bit more. So there might have been that psychological thing that uh, Alex Smith was trying to so instill in me as well. So uh, a very wise man. I guess, as you say there, it's kind of like a different culture of being a young player now versus back then. Do you remember like having any kind of frustration or annoyance about being left out, or do you just accept it and move on to the next game? Um, yeah, of, of course, it would have been an element of disappointment, but I think... You know, you just had to accept it. I wouldn't be one for sort of knocking on, on the manager's door, sort of saying, why am I not playing? I think I probably had an understanding of what he was actually doing. I can't remember Alex Smith ever sitting me down and sort of explaining what he was trying to do uh, because that would have probably defeated the point. Um, so, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I would be one. I mean, after a few years, yeah, experienced player, then I would have been sort of knocking on the door asking why I wasn't playing, but you know, as a young player, you know, um, you're still learning the game. Um, and I sort of probably recognised that he was protecting us a little bit. You know, you want to play every game, you want to be involved in it, but maybe that sort of worked, worked for me uh, to my benefit, you know, in the future. So, um, yeah, he was, as I say, as I, say I, I think that was his management style and he, he did that with all the young players. And and from that point, you, you don't really appear for the first team again um, until that fateful day in November, uh, League Cup final at Hamden against Rangers, a couple of months short of your 19th birthday. And I think to the surprise of, well, pretty much everybody turning up at Hamden that day, you're in the starting lineup. Um, how did you find out you were starting that match? And, and what was that, what initial reaction did you have to being told you'd been given the nod? Well, we, we used to travel down the day of the game before, and we used to stay at Excelsior at the Glasgow Airport. Um, and then we would always train the morning of the game so I can just remember we, we took a little short bus journey to like this barren piece of piece of land where a pitch a football pitch in the middle of it and I just remember getting off the bus and Alex Smith just pulled me aside and he said um, you're starting but that was it <laughs> and oh, he says you're starting and that was it and obviously it wasn't at the time you didn't have a mobile phone I knew my mum it was a bus load coming from Portsoy uh, coming down and obviously they wouldn't have been expecting me to play, you know. So it was it was basically um you're starting but don't tell anybody. So I couldn't tell couldn't I I, I think I don't know who I was rooming with at the time, but I couldn't say anything to them or whatever until the team was actually sort of named so sort of, you know sort of later on in the day. So and that's how I found out. So obviously you can imagine the nerves. <laughs> so. Uh, but yeah, again, that's Alex Smith sort of putting me in a situation that, you know, you're saying that I hadn't played up until then and then all of a sudden, you know, he's throwing me in. So, you know, he's seen something that uh, he knew that I could handle um, a cup final against against Rangers at Hamden. And the game itself, do you, 
remember very much about it or is that one of those games that kind of just flies by um yeah it just flies by um i can remember the goals from paul mason um but apart from that there's not much to remember not even the celebrations because you're you're so young you're caught up in the moment you just you know you just you know i just can't remember anything about the game apart from the goals it's just strange i can remember so i seen my myself the the bus bust load of soy people up in there because they had like a banner. I can't remember what was saying on the banner, banner Jess's magic or something like that. I can't remember Jess from Potsoy, something like that. But um I can remember seeing that. I can remember the goals. I can remember lifting the cup, which is probably the most important thing. Um a little bit of the celebrations afterwards. So it's something yeah I, I can look back on and you know I'd be very proud of but it's something that I can't remember much about which is which is annoying. How long did it take Willie to calm down after the penalty decision against him when McCoyst throws himself <laughs> to the floor? <laughs> yeah, well, you know Willie, he's a sort of second referee, so uh, you can see, I mean, you look back at all the clips, you can sort of see that, that Ali did die. We'd be the first one. I think he's actually admitted it sort of since then, but, you know, that's that's just the game, the way the, the game is, you know. So, but, uh, yeah, Willie... Yeah, I've had that before. I've had, yeah, I've had Willie that, that irate Willie in my face at one point as well. So, yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. Uh, and it's quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Um, from there on uh, out for the rest of the season, you're kind of in and out of the first team picture. I'm guessing it's, as you say, maybe Alex Smith just kind of protecting you as a young player. Um, you come back into the picture towards the end of the campaign. You grab yourself a double at Parkhead. Um, the Dons win 3 1 at Celtic. On the final day of the season, this is actually kind of like a dress rehearsal for the following week Scottish Cup final at Hamden. Surprisingly, um, you're an unused sub for the final. Um, I guess I probably know the answer to this question, judging on what you said earlier, but any reason given by Alex Smith or Jockey Scott for you not playing at all? Uh, well, I mean, we actually we played, we played Celtic at the Parkhead a week before, and that was when they blooded myself and Scott Booth and Graham Watson, Greg Watson, um, you know, and we went on to sort of win the game sort of quite comfortably. So, uh, but I think Alex Smith had in his mind the team he was going to select that day. So, um, and that was just to throw Celtic off. And it, obviously, I'd, I'd scored twice that day. So, I was expecting to sort of be involved. So, obviously, it was an element of disappointment. But again, you know, you have to go with what the managers, manager decides. And, Obviously, we went on and won the game. We won the cup, which is the most important thing. So I know it was an unused sub, but yeah, I've still got the winner's medal. So that's something that I can look back on. That's what you're in the game for, the win thing. So that was another winner's medal, whether I've been involved or not. You know, it was, you're still part of the team. I guess at least by being an unused sub, you, you miss out on having to take a penalty. Um, would yeah, you put, thankful would you, for that. <laughs> would you have put yourself forward for one? I mean, you wouldn't have had a choice probably by the back end, given how long it went for, but... Would you have put yourself forward for one of the first five? Uh, if I'd been in the pitch, yeah, maybe, maybe I would have, would have, yeah, I would have put myself forward. But you know, you have to be in that situation, so it's you have to be. There is an element of sort of being confident, so you have to be confident at that time, you know. So if I'd been playing well, then maybe I would have stepped up. But you would have thought the experienced players would have stepped up before that, you know. Um, but I mean, fair play to Big Brian Irving, you know. Brian was the sort of last one in the last one to take and uh, he did the job so um, you know last person you'd be wanting and probably Brian as well he wouldn't be the first one to step up <laughs> the first five anyway big Brian he'd be the first to admit that so 
you know, a fabulous, fabulous effort with a big grind to stick it in the, in the net for us to win it. So fantastic. I mean, there's a lot of big penalties in there, though, as well, isn't there? I mean, Charlie Nick, everyone knows he's going back to Celtic. It's his boyhood team. Sticks it in the top corner when it would have been easy to blaze it over and oops, that was a mistake. Graham Watson, you know, yeah, for the age he's at when he steps up to take that and you see it himself, the, the sense of relief he got when he sticks it away. And yeah, even Stuart McKinney puts one away, which is pretty decent, I think, as, as I recall. Um, yeah, but some good penalties, yeah, some, some cracking well, pens, absolutely. So, but as you touched on, I mean, the, oh, and you go, Gaff. I was just gonna say, when you watch that penalty shot now, it's, it's just so different because basically everyone's like methodology is just to put the ball down run to about the 25 yard marks from where the goal was just sprint and blast the thing as hard as you can <laughs> it's the right way to do it <laughs> uh, but Ian I was just gonna say do you remember obviously you were on the bench but can you remember like the feeling when you know Theo you know um turns Anton Rogan's penalty past the post well well whether I can remember or not it would have just been so absolute furor on the beach uh, on the bench I'm sure that people you know, it was just a huge celebration. Obviously, you're sort of feeling nervous for your teammates. You know, it's it's just I've been involved in penalty shootouts and they're not great. They're not great things to be involved in. They're exciting to watch from a spectator's point of view, but as a player, you know, you can't get much more of a, you know, a nervous situation. It's just, you know, if you're not nervous in that situation, then you're just a man of steel. But, um, you know, just the, just the, the relief for when your teammates stands up and sort of takes the penalty and scores, you know, or obviously the keeper saves it, you know, it's just fantastic, you know, it's just um, it's just a sense of relief more than anything else, you know, um, and obviously you can celebrate after that if you get the right result. Because uh, Anton Rogan kind of became like a bit of a figure of ridicule there, didn't he? But it's actually just an unbelievable save from Theo. Yeah, it was a great save, yeah. Absolutely incredible save from Theo, but I mean, Theo was a top keeper, you know. You're expecting them to save at least one or two, and uh, obviously he stepped up and did that, you know. And it was a, it was a good penalty for Man and Rogan. He hit it well, uh, but Theo just got down quickly and got a, got his hand and tucked it around the corner. So, um, you know, and obviously, yeah, it was always like a, a scapegoat. And Andon Rogan was a scapegoat at that time for Celtic, for Celtic's point of view. But I mean, it was a, it was a good penalty for Man. It was it was near enough in the corner. So as as you would expect to uh, expect to do is, is to put it in the corner, and that's what he did. Absolutely. So the 89-90 season, uh, you finished that off. Guess really your kind of first proper season around the first team. 16 appearances in total across all competitions. You grabbed three goals in the bargain and ah, winner's medals in both domestic cup competitions in the back pocket. It's not a bad first season, is it? Not bad, yeah. And that's why I thought that, uh, oh, this is easy. This is <laughs> this game's easy to win things. So uh, how wrong I was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, yeah. To have your first First season to sort of have two two winners medals was just uh, just great because um, that I mean that's that's what you're in the game for is is to win things you know and to finish that as I say first first season two two winners medals um, I'm thinking this is this is easy you know this is going to be a a thing that's just going to sort of come it's going to be like every season this is going to be the the same thing but um, unlucky that we that doesn't doesn't sort of come to to come to fruition. Ah, so uh, the 1990-91 season, that sees you become a much more regular fixture in the Dons first team. You make a total of 35 appearances that year, uh, finding the net 15 times as you developed a really fine relationship with uh, with Hans Heelhouse. What are your kind of memories about playing with Hans around that around that period? Just how easy it was. I think I think we were sort of in the same mindset. 
when you're when you're as intelligent as, as Hans as a footballer, you know, um, you know, he knows where you are. Um, I sort of knew where he was, you know, and we formed a really good partnership, you know, and just I really enjoyed playing with Hans. Um, he was quick, um, intelligent, um, could score goals. I mean, he could head the ball. Um, Hans had everything, you know, he was just a, a top, 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 top player. And um, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed my time playing me, playing my hands up front. What was the reaction of the squad like when he comes in for the first kind of couple of days of training and everything? He scores like an overhead kick in his debut at East End Park. It's like, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's an absolute steal thing. It was 650,000, was it? Um, around that, yeah. You know, in, in this day and age, you know, that just wouldn't be seen. So, um, you know, to suck, you came in and just made an instant impact, you know, and that's what you have to do when you start going to a new club, you know, you have to make an instant impact. And that's definitely what he did, you know, um, with the supporters and his teammates, uh, just with his absolute ability on the on the ball and with things that he could do with the ball, you know. Uh, he was just a, he was just a top, top player. And the 1990-91 season, it's where you kind of really announced yourself um, to both, I guess, Aberdeen supporters and Scottish football as a whole. Uh, with a brace and a 3-0 win against Celtic, grab a hat-trick at Tannadice in a 3-2 uh, Dons win, and then a, a sensational quadruple at East End Park against the Dunfermline side, which I believe boasted a certain David Boys in a 4-1 Aberdeen victory. Yeah. Can you just like talk us through you know, how much of a confidence boost it is as a young player making your way into the game to be you know, affecting, influencing games in such a positive, uh, positive fashion? Well, I mean... It's sort of just going back, going back again to the sort of environment that we brought into in the first team. You know, the, the players that we had at that time, you know, they were all, majority of them were international, so it's, it just makes it life easier, you know. Um, but obviously, it's sort of start, start mowing authority on the on the games, you know, and start scoring goals, you know. So it was fantastic to sort of do, you know, and sort of, you know, take the games by the scuff of the neck and sort of, and score the goals, you know. The Dungeon United game is sort of 3 2 getting my first hat trick and then obviously the following week with the four goals at Dunfermline which is you know something that I'll never ever forget you know I can remember the hat trick at Dungeon United like it was yesterday and the four goals against Dunfermline so and obviously David Moyes had played that played that day as well you know um, so I mean these were fantastic times you know it's a, to get these goals and then I think both games are sort of played up front with hands um, and you'd uh He'd a hand in maybe sort of three or four of the goals that I actually scored in them two games. So, you know, he, um, he was a, he was a big help to me at that time as well. To when I was coming into the first team, um, so yeah, it was it was great. I mean, this is way too positive for a podcast dedicated to Aberdeen Football Club. Um, <laughs> so obviously, the nineteen ninety ninety one campaign it all it all boils down to that that fateful day in May at Ibrox. Mm. The Dons only need a point to win the league title. Ultimately, it ends in, in heartache for Aberdeen. Mark Cately grabbing goals either side of half-time. Sees the title slip away. You end up having to be taken off at half-time after being subjected to a trademark Terry Herlock hoof in the yeah. air. Uh, how, Not the first time. <laughs> <laughs> how frustrating was it for you to have to watch that second half from the sidelines as it all kind of panned out? Um, well, yeah. I can remember it because I, I just... Uh, I, was, I wasn't actually because of my knee. I was just sort of sitting, sitting on the floor watching the, the rest of the game, you know, it was, um, it's one of the biggest disappointments in my career. And I think everybody was involved in it on an Aberdeen point of view, you know, it's, um, it's something that still hurts. Um, so yeah, it was, we had more opportunities in that game, you know, with the, the first two 
sort of half chances really. And if we took them, then maybe things would have been different, you know. We can always look, sort of look back and, and look at these things, you know. But, you know, uh, Rangers were the better team on the day. And, um, you know, we sort of, we let ourselves down really and sort of never never performed to the to the, the way we did in the previous games. It's actually sort of killed, you know, sort of closed the deficit that Rangers had. I think it was 10 points at that time. And we closed that to to actually just needing needing a point to, to actually become champions. So, you know, it's the one that's eluded me. And, uh, yeah, it's something that I look back on me with a big regret. I think as well, like, for me, I, I always think that day is a bit of a sliding doors moment as far as, like, Aberdeen Football Club's kind of trajectory kind of went from that point. Because, you know, if Aberdeen win the league that day, it stops Rangers from winning nine in a row. Anyway, it, it stops that train pretty early doors. Um, you imagine it gives the club a massive boost going into the next couple of seasons. You've got the likes of the Champions League starting, etc. It all becomes a lot of what ifs for the club, I guess, from that perspective. And, and you've already touched on. It. I mean, obviously, you would that would go down. I guess has been one of your biggest disappointments in your in your career. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, uh, I think you're quite right as well because, like, uh, the following season after that, you know, it was uh, an element of disappointment. And then Alex Smith obviously losing his job. You know, which I think. If he'd been kept on, I think, you know, the club would have then sort of kicked on again, you know. There was a big hangover from from the disappointment of the, the season before, you know, regarding the Rangers game at Ibrox and the championship decider. So, you know, um, yeah, the trajectory might have been different. But hindsight's a wonderful thing, you know. And as I say, you know, it's, I, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting upset speaking about it now. So. <laughs> Like I suppose any any Aberdeen supporter and any player that actually was involved that day, you know, it was it's something you don't like to look back on, you know. It's just a, a huge disappointment. It's the thing we've realised very quickly is that when you run an Aberdeen podcast and interview players of a certain generation, you have to talk about losing to Rangers quite a lot. Yeah. So a lot of Aberdeen sports to this day are of the belief that Alex Smith basically sacrificed our free-flowing attacking play, which has sent us on that run to be within a shout of winning the league. Um, opting for a view to kind of play for the draw and that perhaps played a part in our undoing. I mean, yourself as a player in that dressing room, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's funny because like I, I did a, I, I, I assume McKimmy sort of put me, put me right because like um, I didn't actually know that, and this just goes in my tactical awareness, that Stuart, Stuart actually sort of told us that he changed the formation that we'd been playing before and I never actually known that after those years. I just used to go on with the game and that was it. So you look in and people do say that, that we'd, okay, we changed the formation. Alex Smith changed the formation. And, you know, it might have been different if if we needed to win the game, you know, would things have been different? But I look at it and I think, well, we had the first two chances of the game. You know, Peter van der Ven and then Hans's chance as well. Okay, they were half chances. If they put them away, we wouldn't be having that, that question asked about it, you know things would have been totally different. So it's all ifs and buts. But, you know, um, I look at it from that perspective that if them two chances um, had been taken, then Alex Smith would have still been the job. We would have been champions. People, but now it's like, there's always that question. Now it's like, well, yeah, we went a little bit defensive. But in my mind, I just went out to play the game as I knew how, how to play it. And that is to go and win the game. From my perspective, it would have been, I would have just went out to sort of go and try and beat them on the day. 
So, I mean, on a personal level for you, though, you, you pick up the PFA Young Player of the Year award for the first time. Um, you win it again in the 92-93 season. I mean, given that that's an award that's kind of voted for by your peers, that that must have been really special, notwithstanding the disappointment of a few weeks earlier. Um, yeah, it was it was very special. Um, obviously, because it's yeah, it's your peers that's sort of voting for you. So, and I was, um, I think the first year that I won it, I was very close to winning both. I was now um, I just missed out to Andy Gorham, I think it was, um, and winning the players' uh, player of the year. So, I mean, that would have been fantastic. But to, to win the young player, I mean, there's a lot of young players, good young players at that time in the league. So, you know, so I win it twice was just, um, yeah, something that I can look back on with a little bit of pride. But there's a story behind the... I actually went to Glasgow to accept the award and there was a... I went up to accept it and it was the time Alan McCoy, I think, had broken his leg and there was he was trying to get back for the cup final. I went up to receive my award and I... Uh, there was a lot of people asking if I was going to be fit for the cup final as well. And um, I sort of went up and sort of accepted the award and I just said I would just like to set, uh, set the record straight that um, I'll be fit for the cup final. I've got a better chance in, than Koisty. And uh, obviously in Glasgow, like half the <laughs> half, half, half the, the audience get up and give me a standing ovation and the other half are like sitting there fuming. And I came back and the whole Rangers team was there because Andy Gorham was accepting the players player of the year award, and he wasn't the, the team was not happy. They were not happy at all. By by sat down, and Ali McCoy came up to the table and said, "Congratulations!" And he says, "I loved your speech." That's the type of person Ali McCoy is. Yeah. The rest of the team, the rest of them were absolutely human. The Rangers players, but McCoy is seeing the funny side of it. So, you know, but this this <laughs> the Celtic fans liked that a lot. <laughs> So, I mean, the following season, it's it's a real struggle for the team. Um, Jockey Scott departs after a home defeat to uh, Balclub in 1903, Copenhagen. And come February 92, uh, following a 1-0 home defeat to Hebs, Alex Smith becomes the first Aberdeen manager to be sacked. Um, I mean, what was your initial reaction to the sacking of Alex Smith? Especially, you know, you've touched on it already. He's a guy who hands you your debut. He he'd taken on that kind of godfather role, I guess, to you and, and the young lads at the club. That must have come as a real, a real shock and a disappointment, I guess. It was a, it was a huge disappointment. I can remember, I can remember him sort of pulling everybody in, you know, and telling us it. And it was just, you know, myself and the rest of the young players were just absolutely devastated by it. You know, it was obviously something that it was a first for me. A manager losing his job. You know, and obviously because he was such a father figure and a mentor to me, it was just um, it was just huge disappointment, you know. But um, yeah, it's something that's that happens in the game more often than not, um, you know. And I think, you know, I think I, I saw a lot of Aberdeen fans would sort of look back and think, well, you know, maybe this it was something that shouldn't have been done. You know, maybe we should have sort of held on a little bit and gave them the opportunity to sort of get things back on track. Um, but that's just the way. Football is at this time, at that time, and this time as well. It doesn't get any better. So, managers lose their job, you know, and there's huge disappointment uh, within the players. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a huge disappointment for me. Do you think that the disappointment from the defeat, um, I brought to the last day of the of the campaign, basically haunted the squad and almost made it, when it pertains to Alex Smith in particular, like a situation, like a hangover that he just couldn't recover from. I think so. I mean, the thing is, it's difficult to say, you know, 
obviously the disappointment so losing that game at Ibrox was just was just massive and you know and, and maybe it did sort of creep into the sort of following season you know uh, what might have been um, it's difficult to sort of pinpoint whether that be the reason or not you know I can't remember if we sort of lost any players the squad was basically the same um, so you know I, th- I think you can sort of look on that and maybe it was a psychological thing that's that sort of hampered the sort of progress that following season. We couldn't get the results. And then obviously Alex Smith losing his job, you know. Um, so maybe it was was something underlying. And maybe that was the reason that um that we couldn't we couldn't perform and get the results that we had in the previous season. And then kind of I guess almost inevitably, um Willie Miller makes the step up to become manager and he steadies the ship and the Dons finish sixth. Uh, which was the lowest league finish um, for the Aberdeen since 1976. On a personal level for yourself, Ian, you become a real mainstay of the team. You make 44 appearances across all competitions, finding the net on 12 occasions. At that point, do you think to yourself, like as a as a player, that you're now like a really important member of this team? You're a senior player all of a sudden. I think so. I think I'd sort of step up a little bit. You know, obviously, sort of with the experience I had the season before, you know, you so you try and progress and try and try and become better um each season. And um it was it was basically you so you just have to sort of progress and, and try and and try and be better, try and sort of improve the team and um obviously again the 12 goals. Um and so as you say 44 games is sort of quite a lot of games in the season. So you know so I played under Willie as well. So and obviously we steadied the ship a little bit. Um, and then you sort of look forward to the season season after that. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think I, th- I think with each season you become stronger and you become a little bit more stronger in the in the dressing room, a bit more a bit more personality. You know, you can sort of, you can you can stress your opinion on things as well. So, and that just comes with experience. What are your memories of um, of Willie Miller as a rookie manager, and what was your relationship like with him? Um, I mean. I think I always look at sort of back at Willie. Willie was sort of the reserve manager before, you know, under under Alex Smith. And I think Willie was offered the job and he wasn't quite ready for it. I think Willie would be the first to admit that now as well. Um, you know, but it would be very difficult for Willie to sort of say, no, I'm not, not ready for it, you know, um, you know, to sort of step into that, that situation. Because there is a big difference, you know. I think looking back and I think Willie wasn't sort of quite ready to sort of step in it. I think because he had to make so many changes because of the players that he had played with, especially the senior players, like Sir Jim Bett and things like that. You know, it sort of managed them. It's a whole different situation from being the captain in the dressing room to then becoming like the boss to sort of manage these players. Um, and he made decisions that, you know, that he probably wouldn't have made if he hadn't been a player with a teammate for these players that were still involved with the club. So me personally, I think that Willie wasn't sort of quite ready at that time, you know, um, but he was offered the job and he sort of took it at that time, you know. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what Willie's perspective was and what his, his thoughts are on it, if he thought the same as what I'm thinking, but, you know, um, it just didn't quite work out. It's fair to say, even with our podcasts lasting almost a guts of two and a half hours ago, we'll, we'd need about five episodes to cover Willie Miller from start to finish, I think, as an Aberdeen uh, legend. I mean, d- did your relationship with him change as well, though, from 
when you were in the first team dressing room as, as the captain to when he then became manager or did he kind of keep it on a level with you? No, I mean, because I had the utmost respect for Willie as a, as a player and just you know, an incredible player for Aberdeen. Um, so I, it, it didn't really change, no, not at all. Um, I had utmost respect for him. I'm still petrified of him as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, my my opinion will never change a Willie. You know, um, it didn't change. Um, you know, it was. I think it was just the experienced players because I was still sort of quite young at that time as well. So it was easier for us to still have that, that respect that 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 he still holds as well. Um, and it was probably probably easier for him to sort of manage us rather than you know manage the likes of sort of Jim. You know, I'm not saying the Jim's sort of black, uh, difficult to manage, but they're experienced players. You know, the yeah. whole the whole dynamic, the whole perspective changes. Uh, but yeah. Uh, Willie, yeah, Willie. We could have a whole episode in Willie. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. I mean, so the 92 93 season, it's one we've talked a lot about in some of our recent episodes, actually, because we've had, you know, Theo Tenkat, uh, Duncan Shearer, Lee Richardson have all been recent guests. That was a hell of a team, though, wasn't it, that season? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it was like, um, I suppose, you know, we were just a nice blend with, uh, with um, internationals in there, with some really top players. So, big Duncan as well. Love playing with Duncan as well. Uh, it's uh, quite a formed a formed a quite a partnership with Duncan as well. So, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the, t- the team is the team is good. So, I was going to say for fans of a certain age, and when I say that, I mean basically me. Um, that, <laughs> that team is still one that is really revered. I mean, between yourself, Mixu, Scotty Booth, and Duncan Shearer, the four of you alone, right? You score eighty three goals between you that season. Aberdeen rack up 111 goals in competitive fixtures that season. I mean, I think you need to stretch. It, you have to go so far back into the annals of Aberdeen history to find a, a, a team scoring that number. Of, well, I'll put it another way. You have to go quite a, a way back to find a team scoring 83 goals, which is just what the four of you did, let alone 111. That must have been a lot of fun to play in that in that setup at that time. Yeah, because, I mean, we, were all, we also had our own little strengths, you know. Uh, Mixu Duncan, Booty, myself. Um, you know, there's always sort of quite a mix. Mixu with his power, he's you know, he's, he's strength in the air. Um, I mean, Mix is one of the strongest players. I mean, we're talking just you know, <laughs> he would yeah, brute. Um Duncan was just like a natural goal scorer. I mean, he just like you know, he's he's one of the best finishers I've ever played with. He was just incredible, incredible in training and in games. If he if he got a half chance, it's, he's he's either hitting the target or he's hitting the back of the net. There's not many times that Duncan will actually miss the miss the target. And then obviously Booty with his pace, the pace and goal scoring ability as well. So, um, and myself, I was the intelligent one, <laughs> 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 the one with the craft and the guile. <laughs> um, so that, I mean, it was a, a nice blend the four of us, you know. So uh, Willie had a had a, a good a good choice of whatever way he wanted to play, you know. Um, you know whether it be sort of three up front or two up front, you know, he could go either way. He could he could have a, a nice blend, a nice mix. Then for a moment, if we just step away from uh, your time with Aberdeen, you make your Scotland debut in November 1992, coming off the bench to replace Gordon Jury at Ibrox in a World Cup qualifier against Italy um, in a game that ended goalless. Just how proud a moment was that for you and your family to get that full international recognition? 
Um, I mean, that's, that's going back again to sort of your childhood sort of dreams, you know, to sort of play for your national side and um, to sort of get the opportunity. It was just amazing. Obviously, it was against Italy. And I sort of remember sort of playing, you know, it was about 15 minutes that I got uh, coming up against the likes of Maldini and Baresi. And, you know, it's, I mean, these are just, these are superstars. These are world-class players. So, so I come on to that environment and, and sort of be involved in that. And so I get my first Scotland Cup, which is, it was just amazing. And I think I've, I've read somewhere that Northern Ireland had been sniffing around for you um, on account of your dad being born there. Is that right? Yeah. Um, my sort of dad's uh, from uh, Northern Ireland. So um, I saw Billy Bingham on the phone at that time. He phoned the digs to see if I would be interested in playing for Northern Ireland. So, um, But I'd actually had the conversation before with my, my father and my father said, well, just go where you got and who you want to play for. So, and it was always my dream was to play for Scotland, you know. So my choice was Scotland. So a week after making your Scotland debut, Ian, it's heartache again for the Dons at Hamden against Rangers in a League Cup final. It's a late Gary Smith own goal, deep in extra time that consigns the Dons to a 2-1 defeat. You get your first Scotland start in a 3-0 victory over Malta in February of 93. And then I guess your whole, your whole season and almost your career, I guess, to an extent, is potentially turned upside down. 6th of March, Scottish Cup quarterfinal against Clyde Bank. Nine minutes in, you're on the receiving end of a pretty nasty tackle at the Merkwin Road end, and you end up with a, a fractured ankle. I was at the game that day, I was in the Merkwin, I remember it, and it, I, I still distinctly remember the sound when the tackle went in. Um, I mean, what can you remember about that? And, and were you concerned, you know, at that time, of what that might mean for your career? So I knew that I'd done some serious damage. Um, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, I can remember, so I was straight through, and, um, the Clybank player. I've actually got photos of like uh, Derek, because I even said he was a sports photographer at that time. He's actually got like the five or six photos of the guy falling on the leg, and then my leg, my legs are underneath his going in the opposite direction. So um, I can actually remember sort of lying in absolute agony, and Bill Crombie, the referee, telling me to get up because he thought I'd die. It should have been a penalty. We should have had a penalty. I think right. it was. It was just inside the box, and he thought I dived. Um, I can remember Bill Crombie, referee, basically over the top of me, shouting, telling me to get up. Um, obviously, I couldn't because I broke my legs. So. Um, but yeah, um, obviously, there's sort of doubt in your mind of what you've actually done. You know. Uh, but a leg break is sort of pretty straightforward. You can sort of, you can sort of come back from it sort of quite quickly. You know, if it had been like ligament damage or, you know, it, it takes a lot longer, but a, a bone heals sort of quite strong. So, um, so once I sort of got that diagnosis, the, the whole point was to sort of try and get back as quick as possible to, to get playing again. And I guess on a mental level for you, I mean, that's your first really serious injury in your career. How did you cope with that, you know, being out of action for the period of time that you were? It's very difficult. It's one of the worst things for a professional footballer to be out, out for a long period of time, you know, and sort of watching games and things like that. You just want to be involved. So, um, with the medical team, David Wiley, um, so, you know, helped me sort of come through in the rehab and, you know, sort of come through and, and get back to, and get back as quick as possible, you know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's it's something as a player you don't want to be so out for a like considerable amount of time, you know. Um, 
but yeah, I think I was out for maybe six, seven weeks. So it was quite quick, quite, quite quick. Uh, I had to get back for the cup final. So, um, so it was like, I'm um, trying to get back for that and, and working hard in the gym to sort of get back fitness. If it's any consolation for you, Ian, based on the performances of John beating again at the weekend, the, the standard of refereeing in Scotland has not improved. <laughs> One iota. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason Lee Richardson you know, spoke about them all in such endearing terms. I'm sure Rico did, yeah. Uh, I can only imagine Rico had his uh, run-ins with the referees back in the day for the type of player that he was. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because, as you say, there your recovery comes around much quicker than people had expected. Um, you feature in the off the bench against United in the last league game of the season, and you then come off the bench against Rangers in the Scottish Cup final. Looking back now, I mean, were you really ready to return, or were you just kind of rushed back? I don't. I think I rushed myself more than anything else. You know, I wouldn't sort of be involved as soon as possible, obviously. And then, obviously, the cup final was something that I wanted to be involved in. So. I, don't, I wouldn't have been involved in the game if I, you know, if I wasn't, if I hadn't been fit, you know. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of quite kept a secret the Dundee United game. So, and then obviously I was sitting on the bench, so it was like a big, a big boost to the team, a big boost to the supporters that I might be actually fit for the cup final. So, you know, but obviously it was disappointing. So I played at Parkhead and and sort of losing the game to to, to Rangers in the cup final again, which was disappointing. You know, sort of two one. But I wanted to sort of get on quicker than than Willie sort of let me. I think it was fifteen minutes, and it was two 0 and we sort of managed to get to two one. But hindsight's a wonderful thing. Maybe if he gave me half an hour, I might have sort of go, <laughs> got a result in a positive way. Um, amazingly, despite missing two months of the season, you still end the the campaign with sixteen goals in forty appearances, and you're named PFA Young Player of the Year again. What are your kind of recollections on the mood in the squad um, that season? Uh, of course, Aberdeen comes second in, in all competitions against Rangers. No, it was sort of positive because, like, um, obviously disappointing. So sort of going back to the, to the the last game of the season against Rangers for for the for the league, you know, sort of that disappointment. And then sort of, then to sort of come back and and start pushing things again, sort of pushing Rangers and Celtic to uh, for trophies again. You know, that was that was something that that we need to do and we sort of got got back to doing that again. So it was it was sort of, we could only take it as a positive positive season from that perspective, you know, that we were we were pushing again um back to what we were doing with, with Alex Smith at that time, you know. So I mean the following season, the 93, 94 one, it's a really bizarre one for Aberdeen in many ways. Um the team only loses six games in the league all season, but draw 21 times <laughs> in 44 games. But still, remarkably, only finished second to Rangers in the league by by only three points. I mean, that's a, that's, in a way, that's almost more of a what if kind of season than the '91 yeah. campaign because there's so many opportunities for that to for that season to have changed. It's not just a one off game that dictates it. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that's an incredible amount of draws um, that we did in that, and to actually just be sort of three points behind them at the end of the season, you know. We've actually sort of let ourselves down from that perspective that we've actually not won any of them games. So I'm, I'm sure if we sort of look back on the games that we drew, there's opportunities in there that, you know, and chances that we've probably had to win these games, you know. So, um, yeah, it's, it's incredible to sort of look back on that with that statistics that's, that we sort of drew so many games. Because, like, if you, you know, if we, if we win, what, two of them games, then we're... 
we're revenge the champions. So, yeah. You know, it's again, what ifs. <laughs> See all this chat about losing to Rangers. It's got me. It's got me on the beer now. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, the ninety three ninety four season. It's basically synonymous with one thing: Torino. Your memories of the away leg in Turin, where you scored to put the Dons two up, and then the home leg. Of course, can you can you talk to us about your recollections of the of the atmosphere that night at Pataudry? It's one of the best atmospheres that I've ever ever been involved in in football. It was just incredible that evening. I remember, so obviously the Torino game, um, and so again the result over there, and um, it was just—I don't know—it's just something about sort of European nights at Petrodri, and just—it's just a great environment to be involved in. But that—that that was just incredible. The whole atmosphere was just just electric, and um, it's the first time that I've ever been man marked ever, and it was the first time I'd ever been man marked in a game. Um, a guy called Moosey just man-marked me and just followed me everywhere I went. And that was the first time I'd ever sort of experienced that. Um, obviously, the Italian way. Uh, but I'll take that as a compliment that they actually sort of seen me as somebody that needed to be man-marked. So uh, I can remember that, that uh, Moosey had actually played really well that night. It's, I think one of my best performances in a Don shot. And um, he said something about my mum. <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm not going to say on air, but obviously that upset me and made me even more angry to sort of just to take the piss out of him. So, um, <laughs> but um, just going back to the, the atmosphere that night was just incredible. And obviously Rico's goal, you know, um, I think I've, I've seen I've seen the goal a few months ago on Twitter. Somebody had posted it on Twitter, and I could actually see my excitement and yeah, Rico scoring that goal. I think I swear. It should be bleeped out on the <laughs> edit. But um, um, I actually think I tell, told Rico that I fucking loved him. So, um, <laughs> I mean, it was just an incredible strike. It was, it was a goal that I would have been proud of. So, uh, But, you know, obviously I didn't get the result. and But the atmosphere was just, just electric. It's one of those nights if you were there as an Aberdeen fan. I think, you know, again, for likes of myself, we were too young to have been, you know, Bayern Munich in 83 and all that kind of stuff. Torino and the Copenhagen game a few years ago under Jimmy Caldwell, the two nights I'm always like, they they felt to me like my generation's kind of Bayern Munich games, you know, just that crackling atmosphere. And there's quite an interesting sidebar on that one. If you if you go back and look at that Rico finish, there's a, a certain Stephen Glass is a ball boy on the main stand side. That oh, night, and he's jumping up and down when Rico pops it in the top corner. So it's uh, <laughs> one of these moments, it's just absolutely crazy to see it. I mean, it you, you touched on it there. I mean, obviously... European nights, midweek nights at Petoria are obviously really special. I want just to bring you back really quickly to this one because I touched on it with Graham Hunter in our very first episode where we're talking about, you know, when you first fell in love with Petoria, for example. And bizarrely for me, it's not even an Aberdeen game. It was an under-21 European championship match, quarter-final, Scotland against Germany. Um, it was, I think myself, and I think it might have been the school team, I think, um, we had tickets, well, I say tickets, we wouldn't have had tickets, it would have been unallocated, but right up at the back end of the beach end. And what a night that was. I mean, can you remember much? But for, for people who are listening who don't know, I mean, I think Scotland ended up being 3-1 down with 20 minutes to go, I think, and turn it around to win it 4-3 and get into the semi-finals. Alec Ray, Alec Ray got the winner. Alec Ray gets the winner. So last we'll talk about our Rangers player again on this one. 
but a healthy contingent of Aberdeen players in that squad as well, like Cecil, Michael Watt, uh, Scotty Booth, um, I think Stephen Wright, Stephen Wright. There as well. Mm-hmm. Can you remember much about that night? Yeah, the atmosphere again. You can remember the atmosphere. It was just, it was just incredible. Obviously, sort of coming back from three-one as well, which helped. But um, I mean, it was just a massive occasion. Full house. You know, you're playing for a national side. Oh, oh, yeah. Whether it be under twenty-one or full international, it's exactly the same. Whether it's under sixteen, under eighteen, um, and just. You know, against Germany as well. Um, you know, so just looking back on that, we just we 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 had a very good team at that time. Good youth players playing in playing the Premier League at that time. Yeah, it was it was one to look back on. Just a just an incredible atmosphere going along the lines of your European nights at Pataudry. Um I don't know what it is, but it's just, it's, these are just special. And obviously, that sort of came into the. That situation with the Scotland Germany again as well was just um, just incredible, and obviously to get the result as well at the end it was just something you can look back on with great pride. Yeah, it's a great night. Moving on to the ninety four ninety five season, you know your own season is plagued by injury. Um, you managed to make fifteen starts in the league campaign. That ultimately it'll go down in infamy in the uh, in the memory of Aberdeen supporters. A three one away defeat at Kilmarnock in February brings about the almost unthinkable moment where Willie Miller is in fact sacked as manager uh, with the very real prospect of Aberdeen facing relegation from the Premier League. Can you pinpoint as someone in that dressing room like what was going wrong on the field at this time and ultimately what was your reaction when you found out Willie Miller had been sacked? Uh, I don't know. We just we just couldn't get results. Um, you know, it was, just, it was just something that, I mean, they obviously would start the positivity of the season before. And then again, we just, you know, we just couldn't kick on. We couldn't get, couldn't get the results. Um, huge disappointment for Willie, because I mean, Willie has been affiliated with the club for so long, and absolute legends of the club. So, you know, for him to lose his job because of our inadequacies to sort of get results, you know, it was a huge disappointment. Um, you know, um, it was just. It was, yeah, as you say, it was unthinkable that, you know, Willie sort of losing his job, um, you know, having been such a such a servant in the club um, in the glory years of sort of winning the European Cup, Winners' Cup and things like that and being the captain for so long. It was just a, a massive disappointment again for us as a group. And then, so Roy Aitken, who Willie Miller brought in um, as a player and as a coach, as part of the coaching staff, I believe, he has brought in to replace Willie Miller as manager. What was your relationship with uh, with Roy Aitken like? Um, yeah, I, I had a great relationship with Roy. Um, you know, obviously he was still he was still playing when he sort of, when he came to the club as assistant manager. He was still involved, so he had a wealth of experience of playing for Celtic, so winning winning leagues leagues and cups with them as well. So, um, but as a manager, he does sort is of, he a, a different sort of way about him. Roy, you know, he was sort of, he was a bit like Willie on the pitch, as in like a winner, aggressive. Um, but off the pitch, he was he was a little bit more laid back than I think Willie was. Um, so it was uh, it was an interesting appointment to set up, you know, for him to step into to the managerial role. But I think it was easy, and so I, I think he had respected the dressing room as well. So it was an easy appointment for the board to make at that time. And Roy gets off to a great start, a two 0 home victory against Rangers so you know people start thinking this is going to be a positive move and then I guess the kind of wheels kind of come off quite quickly again with that Stenhouse-Muir 
match in the Scottish Cup. What are your recollections on that one? It's something that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> um, that, that for me is my worst performance in an Aberdeen strip. Um, I'm sure there's maybe a few supporters that would say otherwise, but for me, it's a day that I would just want to forget um, on a personal note and for a result. result um, if I actually just don't know what was wrong with me that day. I played right wing. The left back got a move after playing against me. Um, I remember standing on the right wing. The ball was rolled out to me at not great pace, and the ball ended up rolling under my feet and going out for a throw-in. And I can remember saying to myself, what is going on here? I just, for this day, I don't know why I performed so badly. It was just incredible. And obviously the result in the end was just an embarrassment for us. No disrespect to this, Stenhouse Muir, but uh, for me, it's uh, a performance and a result that I just don't want to talk about. Probably even more so than the <laughs> the last game of the season. <laughs> I we'll move swiftly on. <laughs> so, I mean, at, at that point, though, I mean, Aberdeen looked pretty much doomed at that point to suffer that relegation. Um, before then embarking on what is probably still, I think in Scottish football terms anyway, the most unlikely of great escapes. I mean, a 2-0 victory against Celtic in, in mid-April gives the team a fighting chance, but it's that double header against Hearts and Dungeon United that really, you know, gave Aberdeen hope. And Billy Dodds is the hero at Tynecastle, gets both goals in that 2-1 victory. And that sets up that straight shootout between Aberdeen and United at Pataudry. Um Dodgy again with a vital goal. Duncan Shearer grabs a, a fine second. For a player like yourself as well, your entire Aberdeen career up until that point has been up at the right end of the table, you know, cup finals, winning trophies. What was the first, what was the mood like in the camp going into both of those two games, the Hearts and the United games, and especially, I guess, the United game, knowing that if we lose that, that's it. It's, it's curtains. It was just a togetherness that was sort of, that got us through that situation. Um, you know, the whole season was very unpredictable and uh, we just found ourselves in a predicament that we had to get ourselves out of, you know. So as a dressing room, I can't remember any is really talking about as a group, you know, the situation. We just sort of get on with we, we need we need to sort of do a job to sort of get the results to sort of get us out of the predicament, you know. So, you know, we got something from somewhere and we managed to sort of get the results that they got us out of got us got us out of being relegated, you know. It was just a massive pull from everybody in the team and um, we finally got the results that they got us out of it, you know. It was yeah, it was something that you, you don't want to be involved in. So, of course, those results, they ultimately set up a playoff with Dunfermline. You missed out on both playoff matches. Um, was that due to injury? Yeah, um, the Dungeon United game, I did my medial ligament in my knee. So, um, the, the game at Petrodri, I don't know how far in the game, but I, I did my medial ligament. So, I mean, that was, that was me out for both games. So, I mean, even for me, that was, that was just, yeah a huge disappointment because I had to sort of sit and watch the games and obviously the guys stepped up to the plate against them firmly and, and managed to get the results, you know, um, to get us through in the East End Park. I was sort of sitting in the stand, you know, as, as nervous as any spectator that was that was in the game, you know. But uh, the guys did a magnificent job in the day and managed to get the result that we needed. The 95-96 campaign, it's, it's much improved. Um, Abri eventually finished in third place. Uh, but the highlight of the season was obviously the the, the Coca-Cola Cup campaign. 
Uh, Billy Dawes is the man who grabs both goals as Aberdeen run at winners. That's right, winners against Rangers at Hampden <laughs> by uh, by two goals to one. In a, it was a late uh, midweek October match because the cup final was at November at that point. Um, the thing that everyone still remembers from that game was your own individual performance. I think also Paul Bernard had a pretty, pretty great game that night as well, to be fair to him. But you just run rings around the Rangers team from start to finish culminating in a, in a wee spot of keepy-ups on the, on the near side touchline <laughs> with about 15 minutes to go. Can you just talk about endearing yourself even further to the Dawn support? Um, and is it true that a certain uh, Paul Gascoigne wasn't too impressed with your, uh, with your antics, shall we say? No. Um, well, obviously, we were sort of very comfortable in the game, having been 2-0 up. So it was just that spur of the moment. It wasn't planned. And the ball was rolled out to me. And then I also did the... It's only I only keep the ball up twice, you know, so it's not really keep you up, but um, managed to sort of do a little bit of showboating, and, and Mr. Gascoigne wasn't too too pleased and uh, asked me what the fuck I was doing. Basically, told him that you would you would have done it, and for that last fifteen minutes of the game, he's not interested in the in the in the ball at all. He's just. He's just basically waiting for me. I actually don't touch the ball for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go near the ball. I'm not going near the ball. So um, I don't touch the ball for 15 minutes, but finally we get the result. And I thought it was forgotten about. Then two weeks later, we were playing Rangers at Ibrox and then I go and score the the 25-yard in the top corner. Uh, you're being very modest, Ian. It's about 40, I think. I mean, at the start of the game... But the, at the start of the game, when we kicked off, he basically told Ian Ferguson to show him into me because he was going to break my my legs. So I'm like, oh my God, here we go, I'm in trouble again. It's not being forgotten. So I then scored the goal and then I'm coming back and Gascoigne basically says to me, what, an, what a goal that is. He says, you can play. And I just basically told him, yeah, you can play as well. So. It's all good. <laughs> and then it was forgotten about he I gained Gascoigne's respect. So yeah, that's yeah, it's something that I can go look back on in my career. That I've gained a player, his stature and his ability, and he thinks I'm not bad. So that's quite good. <laughs> I mean, you always seemed to turn on against Rangers. I mean, you can pretty much have an entire highlight reel of your goals and moments against them, um, which would take up a significant period of time to watch anyway. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Sir Alex Ferguson documentary, the, the new one. I mean, similar to him, do you kind of feel that, even on a you know a subconscious level, that having been let go by Rangers, did that give you a bit of extra drive and a bit of extra determination when you played them to to prove them wrong for letting you go in the first place? Uh, yeah, it probably probably is. I mean, Fergie and the same thing. So yeah, it probably is. When you're sort of given that disappointment, especially at an early age, so obviously, you know, you've got like that chip in your shoulder. So maybe that did help. The Rangers and Aberdeen games are always sort of quite open. There was a game of football, so it sort of suited my style of play. You know, you were given a sort of a little, not a little bit more respect, but you get a little bit more space in the games, you know. Um, and obviously with that, and obviously having that chip in my shoulder probably helps. So, yeah. Did I enjoy scoring against Rangers? Yeah. But the Rangers fans always say that I only performed against them, but I actually scored more goals against Celtic than I did against Rangers. I can remember somebody said, was giving me jip on Twitter or something like that and saying, oh, you only played well against Rangers. And I basically said, well, I scored more goals against Celtic. And then he just 
he replied, well, okay. <laughs> so, you know, so, yeah. So, yeah, but I enjoyed it. Though. <laughs> as did we all as well, it's fair to say. Um, I mean, obviously then on to the League Cup final itself, uh, you're in the starting lineup that day as the Dons run out 2-0 victors over Dundee at Hamden. Your memories of that one, obviously Aberdeen went into that heavy favourites. Uh, Dundee would have been in the, in the in the first division at the time. Um, but still a lot of pressure, I guess, there when going in with that that favourites tag, I suppose. Yeah, and this is a game that I remember more of because I was older and a bit more experienced, so I could enjoy it a little bit more. So, um, but obviously we, yeah, no disrespect to Dundee, but our cup final was the the semi final against Rangers because you have to you have to beat the old firm most of the time to actually get a cup final or win cups. Um, but obviously the pressure was on us because we went in as favourites, so. Um, there was a little bit of pressure on us to sort of to go and win the game, so it makes it a little bit more more nervous. But on the day, um, we went and did a job, and I think as an eleven, we we put on a great performance and and got the res- result and and uh, that we rightly deserved on the day because um, every every one to a man performed to the, the best of their capability on that day, and we got the result and we we, we won the cup. So. It was, uh, yeah, and that that's yeah, fantastic thing to do because of the pressure that we were under to, because of our favourites. The important question, though, did you get a wee shot on Stephen Glass's bike? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I don't know where that bike is now, you know. I'm still <laughs> looking for a wee shot, but he, I, t- I wound him up because I, I told him to get on it and take it for a wee ride, but he, he didn't, go, didn't go very far. So. Uh, but I don't know where that bike is, so. Maybe maybe I'll get once I'm back in Aberdeen I'll get a wee shot. Or... I think it should I think it should be arranged. It might be in his his, his manager's office. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> if it's not, he's missing a trick. <laughs> so Ian, roll on a couple of months from the League Cup final and February 1996. You know these are the days when you know transfer windows didn't exist. You make the move from Aberdeen to to Coventry City, who were a Premiership team at the time. Had it always been your intention to to look at moving off from Aberdeen at the end of that season and was like was going to play in England like a real sort of challenge that you had that you always wanted to take on? I always, I always sort of had had a thought that I would I wanted to play in the English Premiership at that time. It was a place to sort of go and play and probably still is. I was sort of quite upfront with Aberdeen that I would sort of give them a decision in the new year to if I if I was gonna go. And basically I then decided that um that was gonna be yeah, that was gonna leave. And going, and going, so I play my trade somewhere else. You know, a new experience um, for my career. Um, so that was something that I decided to do at that time. And I think it's been documented in places, Ian. And you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think it's been documented that you'd maybe had or been approached, I guess, by the likes of Sampdoria to possibly look at moving to them at the end of the '96 season on what would have been a relatively new, you know, Bosman transfer. So Aberdeen would have. See no transfer fee for you. I imagine you just seen your own bank balance um, improve pretty <laughs> significantly off the back of that. But you turned that notion down to ensure that Aberdeen would, would get a fee, and, and ultimately it is Coventry City that that meet the valuation, and you move to to Coventry. Um, yeah, the, um, that time when I made the decision to sort of move, it was the time of the Boston, the new Boston ruling came out, and I remember my agent phoning me and saying, "Sampdoria were interested um, in taking me in a free once my contract was up, but." I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted Aberdeen to sort of get a fee for me um, because they were the ones that gave me the opportunity to sort of, you know, fulfill my dreams, become a professional footballer. And I, 
I thought that Aberdeen deserved to get a transfer fee for me. So, you know, if Sam Dory had came up with a transfer fee, fee, then, you know, it would have been a good opportunity to sort of go abroad and play there. But, you know, Coventry were the ones that sort of at that time sort of came in and um, they were the only ones that came in with the, with the transfer fee. So, yeah, that was something that just, you know, my morals told me that you know, I wanted the club to sort of get, to get something for, something back for what they actually sort of gave me uh, you know, as in the opportunity to become a professional footballer. So I think this club deserved that. And obviously the Coventry City management team at that time are, a, I guess, the odd couple, I suppose, to an extent, of in Ron Atkinson and, and Gordon Strachan as his assistant. I guess, it's, what kind of insight have you got into to what a kind of duo they would have been? They seem like a, you know, very um, you know, conflicting personalities, I'd imagine, to have in the dressing room. Uh, yeah, conflicting, yeah. Um, I mean, it, yeah, Two totally different personalities, um, but uh, two two men that I've got the utmost respect for. You know, Big Ron, he was obviously the manager at the time. I think God had a big influence on on signing me. Um, I think he was the one that came and see me play and knew a bit about me. So um, he was a big influence on Sarkovich signing me. So I went in and uh, obviously so I went down there. But Big Ron was just a character in himself. You know, a great personality, uh, a great manager. You know, great. You know, he would he would back you to the hilt. I mean, if you if you were absolute garbage on the Saturday, you know, and somebody was having a go at you, he would still back you to the hilt. Um, Gordon, completely different personality. You know, fiery and nasty, nasty with his tongue, but you know, he knew the game. Um, utmost respect for him. You know, so it was a, it was a totally different right and different environment to what I was what I was used to at Aberdeen. But um, yeah. Obviously, it didn't work out in the end. It's 18 months there, and obviously, I returned to Aberdeen, but had a fantastic time there, great experience, you know, played at some great venues, played against some fantastic players. It was, uh, it was, it was something good to look back on, even though it didn't work out the way I expected it to. Was, um, was Ron still just pulling his boots on and turning training sessions into five-a-sides? Yeah, because that used to really irate uh, Gordon, because Gordon used to be, because at the training ground, they've got the, training ground and the pitches out and we would be sitting and Gordon would be out early doors sort of setting up the training of what's been planned him and him and Ron had planned to do what they're doing that shape or whatever and Gordon's out with the markers and set them all out and then we would be warming up and then then big Ron would sort of come out with his predator boots on and <laughs> uh, and just uh, no we're just going to play five sides I'm Ginola <laughs> we would be David Ginola for the day um, and he wouldn't move out with a, a diameter, a three-yard diameter, and just play one touch with his predator boots on. <laughs> so, and that used to sort of really, um, really irk <laughs> Gordon. <laughs> but uh, Ron was a good manager, so yeah, he had to just go with it. If we just take a little moment just to reflect on your Coventry uh, career, you you make your debut a few days after signing. You feature 12 times in the Premier League, getting your first goal against QPR. The following season, uh, Ron Atkins' spell in charge comes to an end, uh, just three months into the season, and it's Strachan who takes the reins and I'm sure is delighted to get full control of the training sessions now. Yeah. Um, Coventry, they pull off you know a final day victory over Spurs to ensure survival once more. And it's at this point that you... you you make the move back to Aberdeen. Uh, what was the reason for, I guess, curtailing your spell at Coventry? 
Um, well, I can remember Sir Gordon. Gordon pulled me into his office and just said, look, I can't guarantee you first-team football. He said, look, we love having you around the place. The, the, the guys love you in the dressing room. They love having you around. Um, but I can't guarantee you playing every, every week. He says, I'm quite happy for you to stay, but I can't guarantee you playing every week, which for me, I need to be playing every week. Um, so that was basically... Um, and he, he then sort of said, look, Aberdeen, we've been just sort of taking you back. So, you know, there's an opportunity there if you want to sort of go back to Aberdeen. And um, I just sort of jumped at the chance to sort of go back. I could have stayed there and, you know, played every so often or not been involved at all. Um, and I just thought, well, yeah. And there was the 98 World Cup as well that I need to be playing on a regular basis to sort of try and get involved in that and get to that. So I then sort of returned to, to Aberdeen. I mean, in retrospect, and obviously, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I should probably preface this almost in that Coventry City, for for younger listeners might not know, they were a founding member of the Premiership and they'd been in it, you know, an established team. But looking back, would you maybe think that Coventry was maybe not not the right club for you? You know, as you say, they were battling relegation pretty much on a constant basis. And I guess that leads to managers thinking that they need to, you know, put out teams with maybe more pragmatic players than they're going to put in a real shift rather than a, a flair player like yourself. So it maybe wouldn't really play to your strengths as such. Yeah, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, you know, and just looking back and then maybe no disrespect to Coventry, you know, it might have not been my style. You know, if, for example, an Italian club had, had came in with the fee, then, you know, that might have suited my style a little bit more. You know, I've got no regrets about that. Going to Coventry because you know I did really enjoy my time there. Obviously, football didn't work out, but I met some fantastic people and some fantastic memories. But yeah, I mean, hindsight again, it's a wonderful thing, and maybe it wasn't quite the right move for me from a football perspective, and it just didn't didn't quite work out, you know. I mean, for the Dons, it ends up being a pretty healthy bit of business because um, they they get you back um, for less than half what they sold you for uh, within mm-hmm. eighteen months. So the money men will have been. Delighted with that one. The 97 98 season, it's another it's another season of struggle for the Dons to an extent. Eventually finished in the sixth spot, um, knocked out the League Cup at the semi-final stage by United, and then they repeat the trick and knock Aberdeen out of the, the Scottish Cup at the third round stage. Roy Aitken gets his jotters in November, and it's uh, Alex Miller who, who who comes in. I mean, you've only been away for 18 months um, at that point, but what were your kind of impressions of the club and the squad and everything about it Kind of when you came back again, did it feel different? No, the club, the club is always the same as in as in just Aberdeen is like a family club, and there was still a lot of people there that were working there. That I was, you know, I was only gone eighteen months, so it was still the same same people, um, some of the same players as well. So, you know, it was easy for me to sort of come into that that environment, you know, and you know, feel as if I hadn't actually been away. So, you know, it was just yeah. I mean, the club didn't change that much. From that sort of eighteen month spell, so it was it was basically the same. Aberdeen, Aberdeen as a club has always been that tradition of like a family club. You know, I was there for for a number of years, and it didn't really change that much. You know, um, and I'd only been gone eighteen months, so it was still basically the same. So, one player who had arrived in your um, in your absence is a guy who's become like an unofficial mascot of our podcast, a particular Ilian Kiriakov. You got any? Uh, you got any stories about Ilian and his time? Yeah, Ilian. Ilian I really liked. Um, you know, I mean, uh, the experience he had as well. You know, Ilian. But 
Haley was like fiery. He was the fiery redhead, wasn't he? Um, I can remember getting like a rabbit punch in the back of the because <laughs> we were winding up. It wasn't a rabbit punch, but he was he was sitting in front of me. We were just coming back from training, and I was sort of flicking his ear or something like that. But he'd obviously had a bad day in training, and he was the two displays, and he so he took a swing at me on the bus. bus. And I'm like, what's going on here? But it's just, but to be fair, Elaine came up and apologized later. But it just like he wasn't in the mood. So, but Elaine, yeah, um, fantastic personality, just totally different. But him and Sanko, Sanko Svetnov as well, the Bulgarians. So um, they were good, they were good lads, you know, totally different. But Elaine was like very temperamental, like most of the Eastern Europeans. So, Footballers, so yeah, he, he, it's the first time really saw anybody sort of swung at me, but serves me right for being trying to be funny. So, <laughs> picked him the wrong, picked, picked him the wrong man, even though he's uh, only five foot two and he's, got red, he's redhead fiery. <laughs> I mean, we go back now to um, the idea of perhaps uh, managers with how should we say a, a cautious philosophy. Your thoughts on Alex Miller? Oh, Alex was funny because, like, he was assistant manager when I left at Coventry. And then when I was sitting in the dressing room and it sort of came through that Alex Miller was was coming, he sort of came in he's like, ah, ah, Jesse, thought you were getting away from me. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, whatever. But um, Alex, <laughs> Alex, uh, yeah, Alex was, uh, I mean, it, it proved that he's, he's got, like, a you know, his knowledge of football and his tactical noose is... Um, is second to none, you know, so he did really well with Liverpool as well, but his philosophy came in and I remember our first pre-season we, um, we had us up at seven in the morning we had to meet at seven in the morning at, uh, where you go and get your offshore training and we would be in the swimming pool at seven o'clock in the morning running up and down the swimming pool we're running in the pool, it was to prevent injuries, so this is like everybody at seven o'clock in the morning at, um, at the Robert Gordon's um, the offshore drilling place, not a drilling place, whatever. I don't know what you call it with it. You know, you go for your safety and your safety drills or whatever. So, um, so he came in with this philosophy. So he had all the right ideas, but um, Alex is uh, so very, very pragmatic. Very pragmatic is the right word to go <laughs> to Alex Miller. And yeah, for a lot of Aberdeen fans, I guess this is the opening stages of some kind of maybe darker days of, of following Aberdeen, but you yourself are always the one shining light through this time. Would you agree that this might have, I mean, although maybe the team wasn't doing so well for you individually, it was some of your finest form um, during this period? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I obviously learned a lot in the 18 months I've been away in the, at Coventry. So um, I had to sort of come into the dressing room and sort of lead by example. Um, I was an experienced player then, so you know I had to be one of the leaders within the dressing room. So, uh, and that probably helped me a little bit to sort of take that into into the the games on a, on a Saturday or um, to perform well each week to sort of, to drive the team forward. So, um, yeah, I would think that sort of, maybe a couple of seasons is probably what, some of the best football that I played for Aberdeen. And the ninety eight ninety nine season, it starts off well. I mean, the Dons come out the traps flying um, in the new SPL setup. You know, your good self is the is the very first goal scorer in the new the new dawn of the new league, and you formed a great relationship early doors with with Craig Hignett. Um and then the wheels kind of just come off again. Um, Aberdeen ended up finishing that season in, in eighth place, knocked out of both cups in in the third round. Alex Miller showing the door in November, so gets very very little time, and it's Paul Hegarty who comes in 
in caretaker charge. And I guess did most of the squad figure that Paul Hegarty was going to get the job full time at the end of that season, or the fact that it dragged on so long with him not being made permanent, did that kind of maybe you know show that the writing was on the wall as far as I was concerned? I think well, obviously again, you, you can't get results. The manager's always when it's loses his job, and Alex, you know, disappointingly, he was the one that's lost his job. And then I think Paul, Paul was, Paul was always in sort of background. So I, you know, he, a great relationship with most of the dressing room, most of the players within the dressing room. So obviously the board had sort of seen that, and uh, the wealth of experience, obviously playing for Dundee United, you know. Um, so, I mean, Paul came on that, you know, he's such a nice man, Paul, I got the, um, you know, and he, he came in and tried to do a job. So, you know, I don't think it was a surprise really that, you know, because of the sort of the influence and the respect they had within the dressing room, it wasn't a big surprise that this, uh, he then stepped in uh, once Alec Miller had sort of lost his job. Was it a surprise you think he wasn't kept on at the end of the season? Again, it's, again, it's the results again. So, yeah. I mean, you can't go with what the board's thinking. You never know, do you? So, I mean, something we we found out maybe just before, you know, it's sort of released in the press when when a manager loses his job. So, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of infiltrates the dressing room and, and it's a weird sort of environment. It's, it's happened a few times in my career, you know. It's just, it's always a surprise. You know, no matter what the situation, it's always a surprise that if a manager loses his job, it's expected, but it's, you know, Aye, but not. <laughs> yeah, but not expected. It's it's just a, you know, we're always sort of the the last. Well, usually probably the last. But before the press release, you know, we sort of find out not not long after that. Then it's sort of released to everybody else. And instead, the Dons go left field. They bring in their first ever boss right with the British Isles, um, and it's the charismatic Ebby Scovdal who gets brought in from from Bronby. Some character. What were your initial recollections of 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 Ebby when he came in? Well, I, I can remember sort of saying to the press that, you know, a continental manager was something that we hadn't actually done before and I thought it would have been a good thing to do, you know, new ideas, you know, a freshness, you know, and so Eb came in and um, God rest his soul, you know, just a character, a nicer man you couldn't find. But I just, you know, on a personal note, I just didn't get his philosophy of how he wanted to play football. It just wasn't, it wasn't the way that... You know, I wanted to play football. Um, you know, I, I always thought like a continental manager would be, you know, playing out from the back, you know, just playing proper football. But that just wasn't the same the case with, with Ebby. Um, and it was such a weird, a weird season, you know. So I got to two cup finals. We were fighting relegation. You know, I, I remember Ebby coming to me and we used to play 4-3-3. And he pulled me aside and he said, look, he says, I'm going to play you up front with Arold on the right and Robbie on the left wing because you're the only person in the team that can chest it down and then hook it in behind their fullbacks for them to run onto. And that was his tactics. And I'm like, I'm playing against two six-foot-two centre-halves who are stronger than me. And that was his, that was his tactics. Um, not for every game, but that, that was... And I was just... I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, but that was that was Ebby. So, if there's one description of Ian Jess as a footballer, target man is absolutely not the one I would ever. Well, that's use. basically <laughs> what he was telling me. I, I was the only one in the team that could do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so but yeah, I mean, I've got the utmost 
respect for the man, just um, just a nice, nice man, you know, and just God rest his soul, you know. So, um, I mean, this is a very popular word in, in Aberdeen vernacular, but it's another season of transition, I think it's fair to say. Um, Harold Starvin spoke to us, and the squad ends up with like 47 players registered. You know, he ends up with like the 46 or 47 shirt, and he said to us, it's not out of some kind of sick obsession with having number 47 shirt and upsetting people like me who think squad numbers are so important. Russell Anderson's also spoken about that just like coach loads of trialists would arrive on a daily basis just because Abby was looking everywhere for someone that could bring something to the team. Even though it's not, you know, the greatest time in terms of results, we still have some pretty decent players. So can you like tell us about like your memories of some of those guys and I guess most notably, um, a little magician from Morocco, Hisham Zirawali. Yeah, just going back on Ebby looking for players, there was, um, I remember sort of was sitting in the dressing room and this guy appeared, Italian, blonde hair, didn't look Italian, but he was Italian, blonde hair, and come into the dressing room, gets a kit, this is like in the morning, and we go and train. Um, we were at the barracks and they're training, we start training and we're like, the, the guy couldn't control the ball, couldn't do anything. It was just horrendous. And we're like, what is going on here? It's a trialist. And we've went back to the, <laughs> we've went back to the stadium, back to Vitoria to get uh, showered. And this guy has got like a blue dressing gown with a hood. He's got the hood up, walks in into the showers. And we then find out that this guy came to the main door and said, I play in Italy and I play such and such and Eb invited them in for a trial. <laughs> so this is what we heard. It's just like, oh my God, what's happening here? So, I mean, the next day we never seen him again. But, I mean, Eb was looking for players, but my God. Is this like our very own, like, Ali Dia situation here? <laughs> so, um, that, that was Eb looking for players, but I mean, just going back on that, you know, with Arnold, Arnold was like a goal scorer again. I mean, natural finisher like Duncan Shearer. Um, and quick. I mean, Arnold was so quick. Just too intelligent for our dressing room, you know. He's writing books and all that now. So, <laughs> um, And then you, you can go on Hisham. Um, Hisham came in and, uh, I mean, his smell would light up a room, you know. And uh, his ability on the football pitch, uh, second to none, you know, he could... So I might type a player, you know, he could do things on the pitch and he's a player, score great goals. He was quick. You know, I mean, he's still spoken about now with Aberdeen fans, you know, he was just, you know, it was something that didn't, hadn't quite seen for a, for a long time and he was a breath of fresh air, Hisham was. So, you know, with some sort of good players and some different individuals in that, at that time at Ebb, you know, um, so it was, uh, it was an interesting time for us at Audrey at that time, and, and for the supporters as well. It's around this time that Arnold also recounted that at that point, Ilian Kiriakou wasn't training, he was just eating lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ilian just, yeah, the Eastern European just do, do what they do, do their own thing. Ilian <laughs> just turns up for lunch, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think in Arnold's own words, he'd retired, he just hadn't told anyone about it. <laughs> um. <laughs> But I mean, ultimately, it's it's a crazy season for Aberdeen. You know, we we finish bottom of the league and we avoid being placed in a relegation playoff with, um, I think, with Falkirk um, due to their stadium not being up to scratch. And yet, despite that, we somehow find a way to into both of the domestic cup finals. 
can you tell us your recollections, I guess, particularly of the Scottish Cup final um, to beat to Rangers? Um, obviously, Jim Layton goes off after a matter of two or three minutes um, after getting a boot in the head from Rod Wallace and we lose 4-0 ultimately. Um, yeah, can you remember like the disappointment that day? And was there any was there any danger of yourself going in the sticks that day? Oh, there's no chance of that. No, no chance. But um, I mean, we we actually started the game really well. We started the game well, and then obviously the injury to what uh, to Jim, you know, was just it was horrendous. Um, and I never actually even thought that we didn't have a of a goalkeeper on the bench because up until then we would have a goalkeeper on the bench. So, I mean, Eb is the only one who could answer that question to why he never, we never had a goalkeeper on that bench. Um, and I just remember on the pitch just going, what's happening here? You know, as in then Robbie's putting the gloves on. Because presumably like Ryan Essen or Priest would have been there like training with yeah. you guys while you're warming up. Yeah, because I, I think up until then we probably had like a goalkeeper on the bench all that time. I mean, it's just so unlucky of what happened to Jim, you know, it was just um, it's a horrendous injury. Um, but then Robbie going in, and then obviously the whole whole dynamics of the game changed, you know. And um, I mean, Robbie tried his best to, to do what he could do, but, you know, it was just a difficult situation all around. So, I mean, moving on to the next season, you're still in the squad, you know, for the start of the 2000 2001 season, but your starts, I guess, they begin to become a little bit more limited. Um, was there any kind of particular reason for that? I mean, I think I remember at the time there was some talk that, you know, perhaps yourself, the manager, the club had kind of fallen out. Was there any kind of truth in that? I don't think I ever felt, well, fell out with Eb, but I think maybe just the way that he was wanting to play football didn't sort of, you know, suit my style of play. Um, you know, um, I, remember, I remember sort of we, uh, <laughs> we did a... We did a train, we used to train in the afternoons, which wasn't a big thing. I was in a European continent away coming in morning and afternoon. So this is fair enough. But this afternoon session for me was just it was just an accident waiting to happen. It was basically a, a pitch, two goals, 18 yards apart, four wingers, and then two teams in the middle. And if you scored in one goal, you then had to try and score in the other. So it was just like 20 bodies <laughs> just waiting to have like head clashes. And obviously that's my strength is heading. So my, <laughs> my my head's completely gone. I'm like unprofessional, just I'm like, I'm human. I'm thinking, what are we doing here? That was at the barracks. So we're getting the bus back and I'm sitting in the dressing room. And uh Gardner Spears, who was the assistant manager, came and he says, Oh, the manager wants to speak to you. And I'm like, okay. So I go into off Eb's office and there's just like smoke everywhere. <laughs> I'm smoking and I sit down and he's like what is wrong you're walking around as if you haven't been shagged in a month <laughs> and I'm just like how do you know and that just basically you know calmed things down and just went what's wrong and I just basically said to him I said look Eb I said nobody's enjoying your training you're not here to be entertained and I'm like well you get the best out of people when they're enjoying their work and nobody's enjoying training. So you know, that's, I don't know when that conversation was. And maybe that was the icing on the cake that I wasn't playing the games anymore. But, you know, I had to be the representative of the dressing room. Yeah. Nobody was enjoying the training at that time. So I just had to be the spokesman for, the, for what was happening. Um, 
but that was that was it, you know, just perfect. I just, you know, making a a joke out of a serious situation, but you know, being sort of quite laid back about it, just wanting to know what the problem was. So so yeah, that was it. And then your final Aberdeen appearance, it's a two one home defeat to Kilmarnock uh, on December second, two thousand. Your final go for the Dons, it's a beauty. It's it's the free kick against Dundee United, uh, where you kind of reversed it past uh, Alan Combe. Uh, so Aberdeen end up, uh, I think they ended up with 10 men that day, but we still run out 5-3 victors at Tanadice. I mean, I guess you probably couldn't um, handpick a better goal to finish up your career with at Aberdeen. No, uh, I mean, I didn't know until a few years ago it was my last, last goal. So, um, yeah, not a bad one to, not a bad one to sort of, Finish off on with a with a, the free kick at Dan, uh, Tanadice, so, and obviously winning the game as well. But um, yeah, it was a yeah, it was not a bad uh, not a bad strike, not bad at all. And ultimately, it's, it's Bradford City uh, who come calling. You make the move there initially on a loan move again for younger listeners. That's Bradford City who were in their second season in the in the English Premier League, and you hit an impressive run of form with Bradford, and they eventually make you move they're permanent at the end of the season after your, your contract at Aberdeen expires. Now, in hindsight, you know, do you kind of wish that your Aberdeen career had kind of come to an end, I guess, in a manner that's probably more befitting, I guess, the impact that you had at the club rather than, you know, heading out on loan halfway through the season and just, you know, being away at the end of the season once your contract expired? Yeah, I would have, yeah, it would have been better if it if it so I ended up, ended up in, in more... In a better situation, you know, it was just uh, was disappointing the way that uh, it ended up, you know. But the Aberdeen fans know how I feel about the club, you know. It was just, it was just a situation that um, that I found myself in that, you know, I wasn't getting involved, and basically, so the the club decided, you know, that I would go out and loan. So, um, and that's what I did. If you had to pick one, Ian, and I mean, there's a fair few to choose from, um, what would be your favourite Aberdeen goal that you ever scored? I mean, is it, obviously the one, that's, uh, the, the one that everybody talks about is the game, the, the one at Rangers, the one at Ibrox. But I, yeah, I don't know. It's like I've got a few, so I'm quite, I don't know. It's, it's a difficult question, but I mean, I always sort of go back on the Rangers one, which, you know, was, was special, you know, in the sort of top corner, but um, there was... It was a volley, a volley against Motherwell and the Dick Donald end, and the sort of second goal for Dunfermline against Dunfermline with the, the four goals. Um, just the way that the the game, the way it was built up, you know, it was a good footballing goal. That I sort of turned David Moyes on the edge of the box, and then Hans made the run, and so I continued my run, and then so I dummied the centre half, and then stuck it in the top corner, uh, in the bottom corner. So that was one a, a special goal as well. So, but I've been quite lucky that I've scored quite a few that I can look back on with pride and you know that um, that I enjoyed scoring. So, but I think if there's one, it would have to be the, the Rangers one. I love the fact you've picked up on that the volley against Motherwell because talk about serendipity. It's 23 years to the day that that was that you scored that goal. I'd I'd forgot about it. But it was on Twitter the other day, but I'd seen it a while ago. Is this the one where you nearly take like the Motherwell defender's head off on the line? Yeah, yeah he's on the line, yeah. And it was obviously be Twitter and Facebook and things like that. And um, I'd seen it, I don't know how long ago, and then it sort of appeared the other day. And uh, I'd actually forgot about that goal. And I was like, <laughs> my God, I can look at it again. Was that me? So, yeah, 
I don't know why I forgot about it. But yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was a good one. It was a clean strike. To be fair, there was a lot of good ones to pick from. I'm not surprised you might forget a couple here and there. There's another one at Ibrox uh, against Rangers at Katodri as well. Yeah, there's another one, another volley. Dick Donald's Dick Donald end. Yeah, I remember it well. So from Bradford, you eventually make moves to Nottingham Forest and then on to Northampton Town uh, before you retired from, from the game in 2007. On a personal level, Ian, you'll often hear people, and it's not Aberdeen fans who will say this, to be fair, but who will try and say that you kind of never fulfilled your potential. I mean, what's your kind of own take on that? I mean, does that view rankle with you? No, it doesn't rankle with me. It's like I can understand where people are coming from, so... Yeah, I probably did to a certain extent, but I never gave myself that potential. You know, it was the media, it was the supporters, but did I fulfill my potential? Well, I look at at it and think, yeah, maybe I didn't, but I've been lucky enough to have three winner's medals and three runners-up medals, and that's what you're in the game for. And how many professionals can't say that? Played for my country 18 times. I mean, people can have their opinion. I can understand it. But then again, I fulfilled something by winning things and playing for my country that a lot of professional players haven't done. So why should I be criticised for, you know, not fulfilling my so-called potential? Absolutely. Let's put it into perspective. All in all, your career at Aberdeen, a total of 380 competitive appearances, you score 94 times for the Dons. So your 380 appearances places you 11th on the all-time Aberdeen FC appearance list. The 94 goals also just places you just outside the top 10 as well. You pick up 18 caps for Scotland scoring twice. You were part of the squad that went to Euro 96. You end up with two League Cup winners medals and one Scottish Cup winners medals. In 2015, you're voted into Aberdeen's greatest ever 11 by the fans. And in 2018, you're inducted into Aberdeen's Hall of Fame. And then to top it all off in 2019, you had one of the pitches at Cormac Park also named in your honour. So that's a lack of potential, that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I can I can say confidently and on this podcast, we never want to be seen to be talking on behalf of the support, but I'm pretty sure I can confidently say that I'm talking on behalf of the support here when I say that you are absolutely one of the most naturally gifted individuals that we ever had the privilege of seeing in, a, in an Aberdeen shirt. And so we're going to wrap this up now, Ian, but we've got one final question for you. And this is one that we've asked them, um, all of our guests to date. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? What does it mean to It means a great deal. I've got a lot to thank them for. They um, gave me my opportunity to become a professional footballer. It means, the club means so much to me. I mean, when I was uh, given the Hall of Fame, it was one of the proudest moments of my my life. And obviously with the, the, the pitch being named after me as well. Um, at the at Cormac Park, the the club is um, always will be in my heart. You know, um, always the first first result I look for. You know, obviously with my, one of my, one of my friends uh, being a manager now as well, it's even more so. Wanting to win every other week, so the club is uh, is a special place for me. Top Mannion, thank you so much for joining us here on the ABZ Football Podcast. Stand free. You're welcome, guys. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us and please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever on your podcast 
player of choice. Join us next week for episode 11 of the ABZ Football Podcast, where we'll review our SPFL Premiership fixture against St Mirren, and we'll look ahead to the visit of Celtic Pataudry the following week, together with our usual roundup of the women's team and the youth setup. And fingers crossed, we have a very, very, very special guest up our sleeves, but in true deadline day fashion, we can't quite reveal right now who it may be. But we look forward to seeing you then. Stand free.